Yes, we're live, Ben Shapiro. Hey, how's it going, dude? I, uh, very good. How's it going with you, man? It's going well. I love I love the new digs. Thank I you. I haven't been here since you, you finished it over, and I walked in, I thought to myself, I've been doing my business wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got, what, three employees? Yeah, yeah, there's not that many folks working on this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so in my offices, we have like 80, and um, our offices are not nearly this cool. So I'm going to go back to my office and fire everyone, <laughs> and then have your folks come in and design, because, I mean, it's either a lot of people, or... I could have cars in my office. Yeah, but you wouldn't go down this route. You're you're more of a conservative gentleman than myself. That, Look at that, you. are wearing a suit jacket. You're your own boss. <laughs> nobody tells you how to dress, and yet you dress like a grown-up. Yeah, well, it, you know, I, I won't pretend that nobody tells me how to dress. <laughs> we have people who tell me how to dress. We have people who do my hair. Do you have thing. all that stuff? You have, like, fashion folks? And yeah, yeah, because I, because I used to, I mean, if you look at the old photos of me, I have, like, the Hitler hair. I've got, like, the, the hair. That's the only thing about me that's Hillarian was my old hair, and I've got the, the hair that kind of comes down over the forehead, and I still walk into the office wearing basically an undershirt every day because I'm incredibly lazy when it comes to that stuff. But we, we You have. should be able to. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the prerogative of being the boss. Maybe you'd be more relatable. Maybe if you showed up wearing, like, flip-flops and T-shirt. That kind of kills my brand, though, no? Does it? Like, if, what is if, your brand, exactly? I thought it was being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're an asshole, though. Well, That's, thank you. I appreciate it. You're a very nice guy. You're just conservative. That's the dirty little secret, though. Yeah. Right? We're, not supposed to, we're not supposed to talk about that. But this is one of the things that bothers me so much about you being so misrepresented. When I read things about you, there was a, the, the article that we were just talking about, the alt-right sage without the rage, they called you. And you're not even remotely alt-right. In mm -hmm. fact, you were the leading target of anti-Semitic abuse for all of 2016, weren't you? Yeah, online? according to the Anti-Defamation League, which is no ally of mine. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not only am I not alt-right, I've spent the last four years, like, legitimately battling the alt-right, talking about how evil I think their ideology is, how evil I think white supremacy is. I mean, first of all, like, people with yarmulkes, typically not the favorites of the alt-right. And then beyond that, I mean, I think their ideology is legitimately a devastatingly awful twist on what Western civilization is supposed to be. What's amazing is a review of my new book, and my new book has several sections in there dedicated to how terrible the alt-right is. And then the interview they did with me doesn't talk about alt-right stuff at all, but they just assume I'm on the conservative right, that must mean that I am alt-right. And it's like, no, you stupid... <laughs> That's the no, problem with no. these labels. They're disingenuous. People are labeling people in a very simple manner to try to categorize them as the enemy. And instead of just addressing these points, like I love watching your debates where you do Q&As with college students and with people in the audience. Because you can see you agree with you or disagree with you. You have well-formulated ideas. This isn't just some bullshit that you're spouting out. You've thought these things through. I mean, I've been doing this for legitimately more than half my life. I'm 35, and I started when I was 17. And I started writing a syndicated column at that point. And when you're 17, you think a lot of dumb stuff. And then sure. you get older, and you educate yourself, and you spend a lot of time reading and a lot of time studying. Hopefully, you have some cogent arguments after 20 years of doing anything. I mean, but it's, the, the demonization is pretty astonishing. I mean, we had an, on Andrew Yang. He's the only Democratic candidate who has agreed to go on the Sunday special that I do. We did a full hour on UBI. It was perfectly nice. It was perfectly coherent and, and, and conciliatory. And yet people will suggest that everything I do is about destroying people on the other yeah. side because of all the Ben Shapiro destroys videos and all that kind but of stuff. There's, there are certain groups of people where that's their shtick. They're like, they're goons, Right, they just go after people online for attention. Yes, this is, this is a, a shtick. This is not you, and this is what bothers me so much. And 
I know that you've said some things in the past, like particularly about Arabs and like when you were a younger man that you said, I, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Some of those things were taken out of context, like that one particular tweet, which mm-hmm. is a bad tweet, was a tweet that was part of a tweet thread in which I was specifically contrasting Israel and the Hamas leadership and saying that the Israeli government likes to build and the Hamas leadership would prefer that their citizens live in sewage and bomb things. But that was a bad tweet, obviously. Yeah. My entire history on on Muslim relations is one like I supported the ability of Ilhan Omar to wear a hijab on the on the floor. I opposed President Trump's originally proposed Muslim ban. In the last three weeks, I've had on Majib Nawaz, I've had on uh, Kanta Ahmed, I had on yesterday uh, a reform Muslim. Like these are conversations that have to be had. But to take this is one of the things that bugs me so much. I've I've tweeted I think one hundred and forty thousand times. I've written millions of words. I'm sure you can find something I don't even remember having written. That yeah. is bad. I have a running list, by the way. I try to be honest about this. I, I'm one of the only people I know who has – I have a running list. It's called – so here's a giant list of all the dumb stuff I've ever done. Right. And I actually go through <laughs> all this – like you can look it up. This is not yeah. me saying this now. I mean you can go and, and look up all the things that I think I've done wrong and I'll apologize for some and I'll say some were dumb and I'll say some I'm fine with and you're just taking out of context. But I mean that I hope that's what honest people try to do. But th- this is the problem. You're not dealing with honest people. When people are trying to categorize you as alt-right or they're they're trying to put you into this category of internet goon, they're they and they they quote tweet just taking some little tiny phrase that you said 7 years ago and trying to say this is you. This is you right. now. It's so that's such a disingenuous thing to do. I- I hate it, and I hate it across the aisle, by the way. Like, yes. I was a defender of James Gunn. I, I thought James Gunn shouldn't have been fired from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, over I thought the old so, too. Tweets. I thought that they was were bullshit. just dumb jokes. Right, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. And even if somebody tweeted something bad like 10 years ago, bringing it up now is not an attempt to actually make the public space better. And you're not actually offended by that thing the person tweeted 10 years ago that you didn't notice. What it is is that you want to get rid of this person or hurt this person. So you're going to bring up something from 10 years ago, and then you're going to try and club them into submission with yeah. it. Because if you actually ask them their opinion about it, they might have a more nuanced view on what they said. Maybe they apologize. Yeah. Right? Maybe they think, I don't even remember saying that. Right. I mean, I, I felt the same way, by the way. I try to be consistent. I really do about, about this stuff. I said the same thing about, for example, Ralph Northam, the, the governor of Virginia, who was excoriated for having this terrible racist photo on his yearbook page back in medical school in 1987. And people were saying, well, this is evidence he's racist now. I was like, well, no, that's evidence that he was doing a racist thing then. That's not evidence that he is racist now. You sort of have to look over the broad course of his career. And he ended up doing what everyone now does, which is you just don't apologize for anything. You just try to pass it off as a nothing. The public space is actually getting worse because let's say that you did something bad in the past. There are a few human responses to I did something I don't like in the past. Human response number one is, you know what? I apologize. That was wrong. These days, that gets your face stepped on, right? You say, I apologize, I was wrong. It means, well, why did you do it in the first place? Because you're a bad person. Apologies are not accepted. And then number two is you brazen it out. You do the Trump. You know, well, I never did anything wrong ever. I've never, I'm perfect, right? And that, and then you get your defenders to come and surround you. And then nothing ever gets cleansed. Or opportunity number three is you do what Barack Obama did, which is you come out preemptively and you try to remember all the bad stuff you do and then you confess it in public. So in Dreams from My Father, he says, right, well, you know, when I was back in high school, did a little blow. And everybody's like, oh, okay, so he did cocaine when he was in high school. That's, that's cool. Whereas if it comes out during the campaign, right, then he's boned, right? Then he's, yeah. got, then he's got a real problem. The problem is that right now, even if you preemptively come out and say, I did something wrong, like, for example, Liam Neeson talking about yeah. years ago when he had a racist thought that he didn't act on, when yeah. he had a racist thought, this is now 
we're going to try and ruin your career for something that you admit was bad that you did 30 years ago. We're going to try and ruin you over that. If you apologize for something that you did 30 years ago, which you would have preferred, just got forgotten because it was embarrassing and stupid, then we say you're bad. And so all you're left with is like the most shameless people in the world who are in the public space, right? The incentive structure is to be deeply shameless, to, to just say, yeah, man, I own that. And it was great when I said it or I didn't say it at all. And you're just, you're just full of it. I never said that stuff. You know, who are you going to believe, your, your eyes or me? And it, it, makes, it makes for a really bad politics. Well, it's just this, uh, the culture of, of going after people for things and, and finding anything to categorize them as someone who's a viable target. And this is what I've seen thrust your way. It's like there's nothing wrong with being conservative. There's something wrong with wanting everyone to think the way you think, though. This is the difference. Like you, what, you, what, you, what I like that you do is you debate your points, you state your positions, you have a philosophy. And what I don't like is when people try to pretend that that philosophy is some, some, somehow hateful or somehow regressive or some, like you're, that you condemn people for their thoughts. You, you just – you don't. This is what I, not what I see with you. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the accuracy because I, I think that's true. I mean I've come out against virtually every Twitter ban, including people who have personally targeted me. I've come out against that. I've come out against virtually every what, YouTube yeah, Let's ban. talk about that because what are, what are your thoughts about this idea of deplatforming? And you know, this is something that we were just discussing before the podcast um, where the CEO of YouTube and – Kara Swisher's Yeah, name? from Recode, I think. Kara Swisher, they were talking about removing you from YouTube, and I thought it was the CEO of YouTube. It was actually Kara who said, I would if I could. Yeah. She was but, pissed because her son apparently listens to That's my kind podcast. of funny if she's being <laughs> funny saying I can't, but it was, it would, I thought it was the CEO of YouTube. No, she was trying to imply that disturbing. she was trying to do the same thing that they, they do with you or with Dave Rubin or Jordan Peterson, which is that anybody who is sort of heterodox, because in that group, I think I'm the only registered Republican, ever. Anybody who's heterodox is now being portrayed as heterodox, meaning just thinks differently from kind of the down the line Democratic Party platform. You're not like down the line with Hillary. Like Sam Harris is a Democrat. Sam Harris is heterodox because he disagrees that Islam is by necessity a religion of peace, for example. Right. Or he thinks that we have to look at actual statistics in order to make evidentiary based points about discrimination and disparity. Mm -hmm. And this makes him an enemy of people like Ezra Klein at Vox.com, right? The, the, this sort of stuff. They then say that you are a feeder for white supremacy, right? They, they, they can't actually get you on what you say. Yeah. So it turns into, well, you know, some members of your audience do things that, that are really bad. And it's like, well, dude, I have like millions of people who are members of my audience. I have 5 million Facebook followers. I have 2 million on Twitter and you're way bigger than I am. I assume that some of those people are going to be crazy, I mean, yeah, I would assume. Yeah. The idea that you're respo- – well, this is what YouTube tried to do, you know, about the comment thing, mm-hmm. where YouTube was going to try to make people responsible for the comments in their videos, which – what is a normal, Jamie – like a normal video that we get – how many comments does it get? I don't know, like 10,000. That's like an average one. <laughs> how the fuck? <laughs> how the fuck? Am I supposed to have some dude with his itchy trigger finger standing by in front of a keyboard just waiting for something offensive to pop up? And this was in response to something that happened with them where there was pedophiles who were watching videos of children doing things and they were commenting stuff in the, you know, like the mm-hmm. children's gymnastics and stuff like that. They were commenting and, and like communicating with each other through the comments and it was sort of... Um, discovered that there was this this connection that they were doing this in many many videos and YouTube 
rightly panicked. They're like, holy shit, we have to stop this. So the response, I guess, was we just have to make people responsible for their comments. Someone said, oh, yeah, good idea. Like, you didn't think through it at all. Right. And There's that's, certain people that can't do that. It's totally insane, and it's insane in, in virtually every respect. And it's, it's funny how it's only applied kind of by the media on one side of the aisle. So mm -hmm. to take an example, the congressional baseball shooting happens a couple of years ago. Guy happens to be a Bernie fan. Is that Bernie Sanders' fault? Right. No, exactly. that is not Bernie Sanders' fault. That went away. That right. Literally, people stopped talking about and, it. And that was shooting of legislators, like elected yeah. people. Yeah. One nearly died, and that yeah. kind of went away. We didn't talk about you know Bernie's responsibility, but there's a shooting in Christchurch, and it's Jordan Peterson's fault. Yeah. And Jordan Peterson has no relationship with the shooter whatsoever. It's my fault. I have no relationship with the shooter and denounce everything that that piece of crap stands for and suddenly is my, it, it's it's really ugly and it's gonna it, it will come home to roost i mean here's what's going to happen is facebook and youtube are going to fall prey to their own standards because if their standard is that you're responsible for your followers or i'm responsible for my followers or jordan or anybody else is responsible for all the people who view their stuff okay then why isn't facebook responsible for all the people posting on its platform if they are right if facebook becomes responsible for all the people posting on its platform they'll be bankrupt in a week They've got a problem. They really do because they have to decide whether they are a platform or whether they are a do-gooder publication. Yes. Right? I run, a, I run a, a publication, Daily Wire. It's openly conservative. We make no bones about that. And we are responsible for the content that appears on our platform. And if we say something defamatory, we will be sued. If we say something that is false, then we will be sued, presumably. If you post something false on Facebook, Facebook doesn't get sued. But now Facebook has deemed itself the morality police, and they'll ban people they don't like, and they'll decide what editorially ought to be elevated and what ought not to be elevated. Does that sound more like the phone company to you, or does that sound more like my website where I decide what gets published and what doesn't, right? Because Facebook's case for exemption from these laws is, well, we're like the phone company, right? When you're on the phone with somebody, if that person says something criminal, AT&T isn't responsible for the person saying something criminal or terrible. It's just the phone company. Right. But Facebook isn't doing that. Facebook is is jumping into the middle of conversations and then saying, well, we don't really like this conversation, so we're just going to kind of shut it down. Not because of legal threat, but because we just don't like it. So are they actually doing that? Like, Say if you put a post up on Facebook and they don't like the way you worded things or described things, will they actually shut down your post? What, what will they do? So they've done it in the past to some conservative public. It's pretty controversial because they're not transparent at all. Right. I can tell you that at the beginning of 2018, we, we lost about 35% of our traffic because Facebook started cracking down on mostly conservative sites. They said that it was kind of news sites generally, but that's not what the statistics showed. They're doing it more often with things that we all sort of agree are bad. Right, mm -hmm. We all agree white supremacy is bad. White nationalism is bad. Now they say they're going to censor that stuff. But here's where I'm uncomfortable. I think that that stuff is awful and evil. And I, those people are the ones are – the, they're the reason I have personal security. But once you get into the business of Facebook gets to decide which speech is good and which speech is bad, they're an editor. Yeah, They're an editor. Even if I agree with their assessment of what stuff is good and what is bad, I am not comfortable with them in the driver's seat there. And if they are going to be in the driver's seat, then they should be held liable for all the stuff that's on their platform. I mean, why is it that twi Twitter, same thing, right? Why is it that Louis Farrakhan is still on that platform, but Alex Jones is not? Like, I don't like Alex Jones's material. Or I've been very, very critical of Alex Jones. I didn't think he should get ba banned from, from Twitter unless he actually violated the law, unless he was responsible for a violent threat, unless he was defamatory or something. They're, they're definitely going down this road of being the moral arbitrators, they're, they're the ones who get to decide what the conversations are. And, and that's an insane responsibility. The responsibility of getting to dictate what should and should not be discussed 
and to have it be a handful of people and have these people almost almost exclusively live in the Pacific you know north in of San, San Francisco yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that whole tech community I mean it's all tech liberals who really if you're around those people they live in this really strange uber wealthy bubble of super genius spectrum people who are coders and super capitalists and people that are raising money all over the place and designing technology and they have an ideology and it's not necessarily a bad one just just being honest and upfront about what it is it's it's incredibly progressive which is very unusual for big business right for big business to be just openly transparently progressive and pushing social justice it's very unusual well i think that there is a, a, a sort of misunderstanding of when we say what big business is what big business is so i think that there's a wide variety of owners of businesses and how they think about politics obviously yeah. bill gates is a progressive guy warren buffett's a progressive guy they are They're, now well, right? I, I think was, Bill, Bill was Gates Bill has Gates been for a while. progressive his whole life? Well, well it was, it, he's it, ruthless with Microsoft. Well, so I think that there are a lot of people. Uh, listen, I think that, that the vast majority, I think Mark Zuckerberg is ruthless with Facebook yes. and he's progressive. I think Jack Dorsey is as ruthless as the next guy when it comes to profit. Mm. I mean, he's still got to be answerable to his shareholders. So yeah. I think I think a lot of the progressivism is sort of a, a way to excuse your own in your own involvement in the capitalist market. You know, well, just, when Facebook took off, don't be evil. <laughs> like that was their thing. Don't be evil. They decided to remove that. Yeah, it was like, Google, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Did yeah. I say Facebook? I'm yeah, sorry. It, Google. Yeah, when Google did that. I meant Google. But It's funny when you think something, but you're saying another yeah. thing. <laughs> um, when they did that, it's like, why would you ever take off don't be evil? Like, right. keep that. But here, here's my thing. Here's my thing. I think that if our tech companies were honest, they should take that stuff off. Like, stop pretending you're do-gooding. You're not do-gooding. You're providing a platform. And maybe the platform is the good, mm. right? In a capitalist right. economy... The product that you provide is the good. I don't need additional good to come from your product, right? If you want to provide me uh, a solid morning drink, right, I don't need your politics along with that. I just need the drink. Yeah. Well, if I want a social media company, I don't give two craps about what Mark Zuckerberg thinks about politics. Dude hasn't studied it. I don't care at all what Jack Dorsey, who vacations in Malaysia and gets bitten by a million mosquitoes while meditating, has to say about the nature of life. Like, wh why do I care about Jack Dorsey's political view? He has provided me a good. The good is this basic chat room where I'm consuming news. How about that would just be enough? But it, it's not enough for a lot of these folks. It's it's the the kind of hooli from Silicon Valley. We're going to pretend that we're here to do good. And it's not enough just to acknowledge that maybe the thing that you provided is the good. Like Bill Gates yes. has done more good with Microsoft than he has done with any of his charities. He's given a lot of money to charity. But Microsoft has provided legitimately hundreds of thousands of jobs and created enormously productive lines of business. And made enormous profit for a lot of people. A lot of people have stock in Microsoft. As a, gener as a basic factual thing, he has done more good doing that than giving tens of millions of dollars to, to various outside causes. So it feels like a lot of the progressivism in, in corporate halls in, in Silicon Valley is bifurcated mentally. It's like mm. people have – they're like dolphins. It's one side of the brain on at a time. Here's my, here's my capitalist side where I go out and make money and profit. And then here's my other side where I show people what a great person I am by proclaiming that I'm for Bernie Sanders while parking my money offshore to make sure that it's shielded from the, from the tax man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good assessment. Um, uh, what I'm saying is that the, the don't be evil thing, like one of the things that I thought was a, 
what if that was like a legal decision? What if, me being cynical that they were pulled into some sort of an office and said, um, if we say don't be evil and you take someone off the platform, you're accusing them of evil. So That's maybe, it. I mean, that, maybe we should slow that down. Maybe. I mean, again, this, this, this self assessment of you are the moral police, mm-hmm. I find really troubling. And it's so funny. I'm the, I'm the supposed moralist, right? Right. I'm, I'm the religious guy. I'm the Orthodox Jew, right? I talk about social standards and how people should behave in their personal life. But when it comes to government and when it comes to me imposing my views on you, I am way less of a top-down tyrant than any of the people in Silicon Valley. I am not here to tell you that you are not allowed to be on a platform because we disagree. It's one thing if you're threatening violence, which is an actual violation of law. But this crap where people like me, because I believe in a social fabric built on certain Judeo-Christian values, but I'm not forcing you to be part of that, and I don't think the government should compel you to be a part of that, or I'm the tyrant, but the person who sits at the top of Twitter or Facebook who is saying that they get to police what you see, and they're going to nudge you in the right direction, nudge you in the right direction without your consent, without them even telling them what you're doing, right? They're just, they're going to push you a little bit because they know better than you and they can sort of massage you into better views if we control your channels of information. This is something the Obama administration was very fond of. There's a, a scholar named Cass Sunstein. He's uh, a legal scholar and he wrote a book called Nudge. It was very famous. It was, it was used as sort of a handbook during the Obama administration. And the idea was, well, if we can just use you know, non-forcible means to sort of nudge people in a particular direction without them even knowing they're being nudged, then shouldn't we do that? And I think... No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Because transparency is the only way I can tell what kind of bullshit you're trying to sell me. Well, not just that. Like you, you're, you're closing down even conversation. If, if as soon as you're trying to silence this other voice, if, if you believe one thing and another person believes a different thing, you should probably talk about it. And the way, the way that I so know basic. for sure there's something wrong with your argument is if what you're trying to do is you're sneakily trying to silence these voices. And again, as long as we're not talking about threats of violence and as long as we're not talking about harassment or doxing, right. we're just talking about conversation. You're just talking about people with differing points of view. If you want to silence differing points of view, I have to wonder about your intent. I have to wonder about whether you're going into this conversation with good faith. I have to wonder whether you've really objectively assessed whether or not you, your argument does hold up against scrutiny. Because yeah. this is also part of the problem. And when you're in an echo chamber, you often don't formulate these arguments very well. Like when you confront people about certain biased beliefs that they have, and you, you have a, an opposing belief, if they're part of a bubble, like sometimes they might not have even ever considered some of the things you have to say. And I've seen that with some of your videos. Yeah, I mean, it does happen all the time. And, and with sophisticated people, I've spent my entire life, literally my entire life, in areas where everyone disagrees with me. Yeah. I grew up in LA. I went to Harvard Law School for three years. I was in Cambridge where everyone disagreed with me and then I came back to LA. So I have never spent more than a week at a time in a red state. Have right? you ever, is you, have your have conservative values moved in one way or another? Have they I mean, have I, shifted I would say that at all? My personal values probably haven't shifted very much, but my political values have shifted libertarian. Mm. I mean, so I used to be a proponent of criminalization of marijuana. I'm no longer. I've been in favor of what decriminalization. What changed that for you? I, a couple of things. One was just a general sense of the government sucks at everything. Mm-hmm. And the more I see the government try to crack down on things, the more prevalent it becomes. I mean, people were dealing pot on my sixth grade, seventh grade playground in public school. <laughs> so obviously like... <laughs> Welcome that was, to LA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and then... It's terrible. Just a, a, general, a general perception, not only the government sucks at everything, but that you got to own your own actions and also examining more of the evidence about the impact of, of pot on people's lives. And, and 
you know, again, it, there's you ruining your own life through use of, of drugs, and then there's drugs that legitimately ruin other people's lives, right? There, there are mm -hmm. drugs that remove your ability to even reason or think. I think there are only two reasons to criminalize drugs in any fashion. One is if there are drugs like, for example, PCP that legitimately make you violent, uh, and then you are going out and committing acts of violence against people, then there's a case. Uh, or if you're talking about a, a drug where it legitimately robs you of your capacity to reason if it were heroin, if you were able to actually crack down on it successfully. But even there, I'm not sure that the proper government solution is criminalization because we've criminalized it and it's still incredibly prevalent. So yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. And I agree with you in terms of drugs being extremely detrimental. And the other part is that there's comparable drugs that are legal. Like, mm -hmm. And comparable drugs, meaning not even really comparable, drugs that are far more devastating, like alcohol. Like, you, you could just go to any grocery store and buy a, a jug of whiskey and kill yourself with it. Yep. So it's not difficult. You and, just drink the whole thing And we have laws on dead. the books already that prevent externalities. Yeah. If you drive high, it's the same as driving drunk. Yeah. So I'm not sure that you need additional laws to do that. And also, you know, I'm not opposed to zoning laws. Like, I don't think a pot shop should open up right next to my house, right? They're residential right. zoning. That's fine. Uh, Same so, with liquor stores, though. Right. I don't want a liquor store right next yeah. to my house. This is correct. Yeah. Right. So, the, so I've become libertarian in some ways on that sort of stuff. The same thing is true, by the way, when it comes to the issue of same-sex marriage. So on a personal moral level, I'm opposed to same-sex marriage. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and I believe that a man and a woman were made for each other. When it comes to government involvement, I don't think that's anybody's business. I think a lot of things. I think adultery is bad, too. I don't think the government ought to be involved in adultery. I I'm, I'm so strict, I don't think premarital sex is a good thing, right? I, I've been very vocal about this. I was a virgin until I was married. My wife was a virgin until she was married. I think that's a good thing. So I think the government has anything to do with any of those things? No, I don't. I don't think it's any of the government's business. It's consensual activity. There are no externalities. So what exactly is the government getting involved in? And when the government gets involved in stuff, then there are externalities, right? Once the government starts to cram down its vision on right. people, then you start to get unintended externalities. So for example... With the, le with the legalization, my, my view on marriage is that the government should get completely out of the business. I don't think the government should be involved in straight marriage. I don't think it should be involved in gay marriage. I think the government should be out. I agree 100%. And, and, and the reason that I say that is because as a religious person, right, who believes in traditional marriage, I have two, I have two marriage certificates. I have the one from the state that I don't give two craps about. It's buried somewhere in my garage. And then I have my, religi my religious marriage certificate, which meant, among other things, that I got to shut my wife, right? I mean, like, this was the one that mattered to me. And... I think that's true for most religious people. The religious ceremony matters a lot more than the state saying a thing. And the state isn't incentivizing marriage. People aren't getting married because they're like, yeah, I need the tax break. Right. So that's a bunch of nonsense. And once the government decides what version of marriage it wants to push, that then comes into conflict with other values. So, for example, once the state of California decides that same-sex marriage is on legal par with heterosexual marriage, now I'm worried about the externality of I have a religious day school or I have a, my, my synagogue. My synagogue is a religious institution. It doesn't approve of same-sex marriage. Now is the government going to come in and tell my synagogue how it ought to act with regard to same-sex marriage? I don't think that's the government's business. So how about this? How about everybody gets to do basically what they want, associate with whom they want, and it's none of the government's business. This seems like a pretty good, happy medium. I, I'm so glad you talked about the two things that I want to talk to you about that I'm sure we disagree about. Mm -hmm. One of them being marijuana and the other one being gay people marrying each other. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start with the marijuana one. Do you think marijuana ruins people's lives? Is that, is that one of your contentions? Um, I think that it can, and I think in the same Have way alcohol Have you ever had can. any experience with marijuana? No, I'm just no? talking about the, I'm just talking about, 
the statistical overuse of marijuana among teenagers does have detrimental brain effects that have yes. some long-term after effects. It's pretty proven. And that's one of the things that I really, I'm glad you said that because I wanted to cover that when you were in the middle of a rant when we were joking around yeah. about sixth and seventh graders selling pot. Don't smoke pot when you're young. You really should. It's not good for the development of your brain. Same thing with drinking. You know, I didn't smoke a lot of pot when I was a kid. I, I did it a handful of times until I was 30 years old. But I did drink a bunch of times when I was young and in high school. And it's terrible for brain development. Right. Especially before you're 25 and your your frontal cortex hasn't even fully formed. Your frontal lobe is like this. It's 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 a developing thing. And there, there was an article recently that I posted from BBC that was saying that you probably shouldn't be considered an adult until you're 30. Right. They're saying brain development doesn't even stop until you're 26 or 28. This is why when, when people are saying, let's, let's lower the, the voting age. Yeah. Sixteen. I'm like, what the? What the fuck are you talking what about? In the yeah. world? <laughs> when I was sixteen, I was a chimp. You know, I mean, really, I was a chimp in a high school. Now, when the 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 problem that I have with many people's perceptions on marijuana is that it's based on ignorance, meaning not no personal experience with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and. There's, Listen, I'll admit, I've, I have no personal experience with marijuana, don't. so I'm, I know you don't. I'm not speaking. You probably from should experience. get high. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, <laughs> man, I've seen the effects on on stock prices when people get high in the studio. Oh, they, so. they jump up, man. <laughs> they jump down for a little when a bunch of chickens <laughs> jump off the boat, but then they come right back up. Um, the, the marijuana thing is, in my opinion, uh, it's another one of those things where people have this this categorized box that they like to put marijuana users in. Like, this is the category, lazy, stoner, stupid, delusional. It's too widespread for that. I mean, there, there are people I know who are doctors who, who use yes. marijuana. So well, there's... Uh, the jiu-jitsu community is a, a big one. There's a giant percentage of the jiu-jitsu community that does jiu-jitsu high. They have okay. competitions. Sounds like more of a party. It's not, man. I'm telling you, because it's, it's not what people think it is. If you've never smoked marijuana, this is going to be a very difficult thing to, to grasp. But marijuana enhances jiu-jitsu because it eliminates the rest of the world. When you're rolling, which rolling is like, say, if uh, you and Jamie were going to have a sparring match, that would be rolling. Like you'd slap hands and then you'd go and you're trying to choke him and he's trying to get you in an arm bar and you're going after it. When you do that on marijuana, it's like you don't think of anything else other than those movements and it becomes like this very intense meditation in violence like you, it's not violent in terms of most of the time you don't really even get hurt mm -hmm. it's like you get to the point like one of the beautiful things about jujitsu is you can grab a hold of someone and choke them to the point where they're going to go to sleep and you would kill them if you kept going and they tap and right. then you're friends again and mm -hmm. everybody's cool and you try to do it to me and I try to do it to you and you really can do it reasonably hard without people getting hurt mm -hmm. and it happens mm -hmm. every day all throughout the world mm -hmm. a lot of these people are high and they're doing this jujitsu practice in this almost like uh, trends it's like it's Listen, a transcendent state if, if you can function when you're using marijuana I don't care but you can. And, this is what I'm right, saying. And that's, and, and, the, the perceptions I mean, are off. So, I mean, I would assume there's a small subset of the population for whom that's not true, right? Who are overusing marijuana. Yes. And, and that's I, probably the majority, in fact. Okay. So, so then, you know, but, but again, I would say that's, that's not a case the same for, way with food. Uh, I agree. So I, I don't think there's anything we disagree about here because I'm not talking about criminalizing marijuana use. Right. I think that we, we should honestly discuss the, the evidence that for a subset of the population, there is some evidence that marijuana is addicting, but it's a subset. It's not mm -hmm. everybody who's on marijuana. The vast majority of people on marijuana are not addicted to marijuana. I think in the same way, the alcohol. I mean, it's true of alcohol as well. There's there's people that are going to be addicted to almost anything, and I think there's 
there's absolutely people that are addicted to sugar. There's for sure people that are addicted to nicotine and alcohol and all mm-hmm. these things that we let people have. The material addictiveness of marijuana yeah. is not comparable to opioids, though, for example. It's not even comparable to alcohol or nicotine. It's, it's a, it seems to be very rare when people become physically addicted to it, extremely rare. And what's, what's common, though, is abuse. And it's common in everything that human beings consume. It's mm-hmm. abuse is common, as we said, with food, certainly common with alcohol. It's certainly common with pills. But this is why, you know, I really believe that the way to solve some of these problems is, is a social fabric problem. Like it's mm-hmm. a parenting problem. It's a social fabric yes. problem. It's a personal choice problem. Yes. And that's why virtually every solution I suggest is so funny. You know, I'm constantly conservatives like me who are libertarian leaning are constantly accused of being non-compassionate. No, it's just. Our compassionate solutions don't involve the use of government. Yeah. It's like we're going to encourage people to make better decisions with their lives. And if you choose not to do that, it's a free country. Well, you know, coming from a religious background, you have this community that reinforces this kind of behavior and thought. And uh, I think that's one of the major, really one of the best benefits of religion is that moral fabric and that community, the sense of community, even silly ones like Mormons. You know, they're, they're the nicest folks, right? They believe something that is fucking patently insane. If you go and read the Joseph Smith text from 1820, when he was 14 years old, the shit that he wrote. Like, like, <laughs> I try not what? to get into doctrinal insanity. I wear yeah. a funny hat all day. So, I hear you. Well, you know, but, I was going to get to that. Yeah, but, 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 <laughs> but, but, you know, with that said, I mean, Alexis de Tocqueville talks about this, you know, early on in the American Republic. The idea is that what makes America very different is the idea you don't need a big government when you do have a supportive social fabric where yeah. people feel like they're at least oriented toward a common goal. It's one of the problems that I think we have in the country right now. I'm not sure people are oriented toward even a common sense of, of conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's, you don't have to agree on, on everything in order to have a common sense of the important values that, that unify the country or should. Yes. Right? I, I always use Sam Harris as sort of my bet noir here because he's obviously a militant atheist. I'm, I'm an, equally, an, an equally strong believer. And yet when it comes to the things that we would like to see happen in the country, not on government policy level, but on a let's have a conversation level and discuss on evidence level, we're on the same page. There are certain core assumptions you have to make in order for that to to happen. My argument about America and the West is that those core assumptions are built on Judeo-Christian foundations. Sam's core argument seems to be that they're built on evolutionary biology. We we differ a little bit there. Mm. Um, I don't want to let this marijuana thing go Mm -hmm. just yet. One one of the things that I wanted to bring up to you was this idea that if you're a religious person— don't you think that there's certain things that maybe God put here for us to consume, to change your perspective, to allow you to reach new levels of consciousness? Don't you think it's entirely possible that some of these things that are here, and I know you haven't experienced them, mm-hmm. but they might literally have been put there by God. And there's some evidence to say that a lot of the texts from the Bible, um, that in particular there was, uh, I think it was the University of tel aviv somewhere in in jerusalem where these scholars were they were trying to decipher what it meant when moses encountered the burning bush right and they believe that it may have been the acacia tree which is very rich in dimethyltryptamine which is a psychedelic substance that actually that the brain produces and it's very common in plants and they think that this might have been when he met god and god was a burning bush that this might have been some crude translation of them being involved in some sort of a psychedelic experience. Now, it sounds outlandish unless you've had that psychedelic experience. And when you have, you very well could think that you were in a conversation with God. This is on earth. 
And this is something that may very well have been lost information, or this may very well have been rituals that people participated in to bring them closer together and to reinforce that sense of community that you do get from a church and you do get from uh, a group of people that share more beliefs and values. And there's a there's real good discussion that a lot of these experiences that became these religious doctrines came from psychedelic experiences. Now, as someone who's never experienced that before, I know this is probably a very strange thing to try to even wrap your head around. It's, it, it is entirely alien until you experience it, but it might very well be religious. I mean – I've heard that from other people who have who've been who have used those kinds yes. of drugs. I mean, Sam actually made this argument to me too about, yeah. about the use of psychedelics. Um, and I mean, maybe. I mean, God I, again, made I, apples. Well, okay. So th- right? this argument, I'm, I, I will say, I'm not super fond of the argument that God made something and therefore it's ours to use or. Abuse. I mean, like I keep kosher, right? Like right. God made pigs. I don't need them. So, right. <laughs> so I, I am not a huge fan of the argument that because something is here or because an urge is natural, mm-hmm. therefore we ought to imbibe, or therefore we ought to participate in a particular activity. You know, one of the things that, I, that I'm very big on, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a rationalist when it comes to religion, as much as you can be a rationalist with regard to religion, to the extent that I think that it's up to us to use our reasonable faculties to determine the proper use of things, mm-hmm. So, which is why you shouldn't overuse drugs, even if you're going to use drugs, but for th- example. This is part of the problem of making things illegal. You make things illegal, then you really don't know what it is or how it affects the body or what's the right dose or the wrong dose. And then people get involved in these terrible situations where they're taking things and they're just guessing what I mean, it is. I th- mean, there's truth to that, but it's also true that on a social level, I'm not talking about legal because we totally agree mm-hmm. on the legal level. On, on the social level, there's... A couple of things that are true of, for example, the Orthodox Jewish community. Low rates of addiction because people have that social fabric. They mm-hmm. don't feel the necessity. Also, you know, as you say, substance use in moderation can actually be quite a good thing. So low rates of alcoholism in the Jewish community, and part of that is the fact that you are given kiddish wine from the time you're a kid, right? I mean, you actually right. are, are – It's destigmatized. Yeah, it's destigmatized. And the idea is that in its proper context, this could be a, a good thing. Right. Uh, so – I'll admit, I don't know enough about the proper context of marijuana to know when it would be a quote-unquote good thing. And so... It I can, have, and, it and can also, be a good thing. I, this is what I'm telling I'm also, you. And also, I'm, you know, I don't... The truth is, I don't enjoy drinking, right? I'm not, I'm not a drinker. I don't enjoy... I, I like reality. I like living in reality, and I like experiencing it totally sober. So I've never really felt the, the urge to, to do any of that stuff. I, I hear the pitch. I hear the pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really felt the interior desire or need to, to jump I completely into that. understand that. I think that what we're dealing with, though, is perceptions that have been molded by laws that were shaped by tyrants. That's what I think. I mean, again, that's totally possible and plausible. Yeah. And, uh, but and it's, it's historically accurate. I mean, when it comes to prohibition, prohibition with alcohol didn't work. Pro- prohibition with drugs is just making the cartels bigger. And it's causing more, no, no, I, more I, problems with I, organized crime. I agree crime. On, on a practical level. A practical I agree. Whether level. you like drugs or don't like drugs, government interventionism is generally a giant fail. I think our perceptions of what is good for you and is bad for you is also based on laws that the government created ignorantly. The sweeping psychedelic act of 1970, which made virtually everything psychedelic that they could... 
they missed a few things, a few mm-hmm. things slipped through the cracks. But all of the tryptamines and or most of them, um, the, the psilocybin, LSD, all that stuff was made completely illegal by people who really didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is why we base our ideas of what's good or bad for you. It's it's based on what is legal and what and Listen, what I'll, I'll other complete, people have done with it. On on this area, I'll admit not only complete experiential ignorance, but complete evidentiary ignorance. So I haven't yeah. examined the evidence. So I really don't have strong opinions on any of this stuff. I think it's one of the bridges that we all could use between conservative thought and liberal thought, particularly for people that are dying. It's one of the things that Johns Hopkins found, and uh, there's been other studies done, and there's been therapy done on people that are dying of terminal diseases, and they give them psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And when they give them these mushroom trips, they have these beautiful experiences where they completely accept death, and it's almost a universal reaction Mm -hmm. to it. That, that like the the amount of people who still experience a positive benefit months and months after the experience while they're dying that they they say this was an incredibly moving and powerful moment in my life that allowed me to accept the fact that my time here is done mm-hmm. i mean listen if if that's something that that works for people and that's what it's designed to do then i don't know I don't, if it's designed well even if it's designed it might be designed by god well, it, like it literally might that that's fine i mean i think there's also the generalized religious counter argument that there are no shortcuts to uh, no, no shortcuts to to happiness so, so mm-hmm. let's uh, let's Pose a, a sort really of thought experiment. I don't think. Well, it's this a is the question, right? I mean, okay. like, let's say that I could guarantee you that tomorrow you're going to be a happier person. All you have to do is take this regimen of of drugs that you're going to take every day, and it's going to make you a happier person, a more well-rounded person. But it's going to permanently change your brain chemistry. Is that something that you think is good, or is it something you think is bad? Because from a religious perspective, there is an argument to be made that these are this is work you need to do on yourself without outside aid, if possible. If there's cases where you can't, then you can't. But yeah, you know, Terrence it's an interesting McKenna, thought experiment. Terrence McKenna had a line about that. Uh, he said that uh, th- there was a joke about uh, there was a monk and he met Buddha because Buddha came to town and he said Buddha he wanted to impress him. He said I practiced a city of levitation and uh, I have done this for ten years and now I can walk on water. And the Buddha says, "But the ferry's only a nickel." <laughs> the idea, the idea <laughs> no, is like, what are you fucking wasting your time? Like, you can aid the progression rapidly with psychedelic drugs, and this is something that you know. Do you know about Maps and their work with MDMA and soldiers that have had PTSD? Not, so not too much. No, it's it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. By giving these soldiers MDMA therapy, meaning they they give them MDMA, which is essentially what people think of as ecstasy, the street mm-hmm, name. Mm-hmm. They give them pure MDMA, and then they assist them with they, – they actually have a psychologist sit with them, a therapist, and they go over all these details of these traumatic events, and they come to peace with everything. Mm-hmm. And they've had profound benefits for uh, soldiers and for we uh, some combat journalists. D- different people that have been over there and have experienced you know, the horrors of war and, and just general PTSD, maybe for people who have experienced violence attacks. That it is shown to be one of the very best things mm-hmm. we've ever discovered for helping people get past well, something. These are, so here's to me, and I'm thinking about this on the fly because this is stuff I don't right. think about very much, um, but it's, it's, there's a, a complex moral equation to the extent that if you're talking about somebody who has PTSD, somebody has a condition, and the only way to help that condition is to use these drugs, mm-hmm. I've never had a problem with any of that stuff, right? I right. mean, I've, my grandfather was, was schizophrenic. 
and by, maybe bipolar, maybe schizophrenic. The diagnosis is not exactly clear. They prescribed him lithium and made him a lot better. Would he have been better off struggling with the schizophrenia? Of course not. It's much better that he should have the lithium yeah. and then be able to live in his rational mind. Yes. Uh, so when there's a problem, using drugs to get past it and, and work with it is a good thing. You do run the risk of the sort of brave new world situation where you have a, a group of people who have a certain level of airsats happiness that is not driven by a, a point of view, but more by just the these chemicals in their, their body. The chemicals and, affect your point of view. Well, that, that is 100% true. Yeah. But are you – Yuval Harari talks about maybe this yes. is the future, right? He talks about the idea that maybe the future is we just drug ourselves until we're happy, basically, uh, mm. or that happiness is the drugs because if you're a scientific materialist, that's what it is. Happiness is just a bunch of chemicals flowing throughout your body. So if you can bring them in without – self-change. But I, I do wonder whether that robs people of a certain level of purpose, that, that the struggle is part of being human. I think it, we're changing what it is to be human just by carrying around phones and just... I mean, that's, that's true. But I think that that's, again, one of the things that I think makes being a human worthwhile is the idea that you are struggling. Like, yes. I, I, think, I think the struggle is actually meaningful. Mm. And, and I, I think that's why religions tend to set prophylactic rules, sometimes for good and sometimes for ill. So, for example, I... I'm addicted to my phone. I mean, there's just no question, right? It's, it's in my hand all the time. And, but from Friday night to Saturday night, it's off. I can't look at it. I'm forbidden from looking at it. And this breaks the cycle, mm. at least for one day a week. And that's a good thing that makes me better as a human being because it's a limit I set for myself and then a limit that I abide by. And if you believe in, in self-mastery, where, where's the happy medium between self-mastery and I need a little bit of aid? And I think that there, there is a happy medium yes. there, um, but I'm not sure that, that – you know, drugs are the answer to, I don't think you're suggesting drugs are the answer. No, past, I'm not the, suggesting the, that. And I think there's also a problem with the word drugs, mm-hmm. uh, th- that the, everything is under that blanket, and that blanket can be entirely negative or extremely positive. And yeah, the I mean, word I mean drug, the generic. Uh, but I, I mean, know, but that's a, there's yeah. a problem. I use it too. I mean, it's yeah. not, not accusing you, but that, that term, it's a problem. It's a problem term, because what these are are substances that are psychoactive, and some of them can be extremely beneficial, and some of them have short-term experiences that last with long-term results. And I don't think that there's enough knowledge that – I don't think the people that are negative against it have experienced enough of it or have looked at it in an objective, rational way. Because I think it's something that could be here to aid perspective, to give people a chance to think outside of their normal – conditioned way of thinking that might have been established by their community or by their church or by their neighborhood, whatever it is, sometimes a little bit of a break, a little bit of a, a mental break from what you're experiencing and the, the, the vibration that you exist on almost every day, to separate from that and to get a look at it from the outside, sometimes it allows you to have a renewed perspective that can enhance your life greatly. As long as when people re-engage, they're re-engaging yes. at a level of but commonality, right? that's a discipline right? thing, and this, this is, is what we share. You and I are both disciplined people, and it's one of the things I really respect about you. You're a very hard worker. You're always on the ball. You're very disciplined. And I know that a lot of conservative people ad- admire that and they admire that in folks and they think that people who are liberal are not disciplined. They think that they're lazy. It falls into this like weak beta male sort of category of people that are progressive and liberal. And I think that's, I think that's a misunderstanding. I think you guys, you and I both agree that the struggle is very important, but I'd struggle physically so that I don't have to struggle mentally. 
I struggle physically so that I can have a, a better way of looking at things with less stress. Mm-hmm. So it, we have this shared belief that things should be a struggle. My str- I force my struggle on myself so that I can have a better perspective. And this is something that you and I differ on. Like, I think you exercise, right? Yes. Uh, how, how often do you do it? I try to every day. Yeah. Makes a big deal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a huge. Difference. It's a huge. Yes. It's a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we we both understand that struggle is a. It's an important part of understanding yourself. Yes. If you do not push yourself, if you do not struggle, you're not going to really get who you are, or what your boundaries are. And if you're self indulgent, if every day you're stuffing things in your face that you want to, like it's good to have a rule. Like, hey, for this next month, you can't eat this, or you can't do that, or I want you to start fasting 16 hours a day. Is it that hard? Just eat for eight hours a day and fast for 16? No, but that just doing something like that and setting these guidelines for yourself and putting yourself into a, a, a disciplined state can be extremely beneficial. Like Jocko Willink always says, discipline equals freedom. It, it is yep. a great formula, and it's real. Well, it's, it, and again, it is the basis of a lot of religion. I mean, a lot of yes. religion is very practical. Practice-based. It's one of the reasons I like Judaism as opposed to other religions. They very practice-based religion. You know, sometimes you can take that too far in one direction, which is I say you need to balance reason with with dictates right. that are that are meant to make you better. But that goes all the way back to Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle talks about how you have to practice to be good, right? You have to practice right. to be virtuous. What makes you a virtuous person is acting repeatedly in accordance with with right reason, and that is setting rules for yourself, right? That is not violating every rule. I, yes. I think when when we talk about on the conservative side. You know, folks on the left being lazy. I, I don't mean that in terms of work. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is a hard worker, I assume. I think Jack Dorsey, when he's not getting bitten by, by mosquitoes, seems like a hard <laughs> worker. But, you know, most, most of the people, most people who have jobs are hard workers. I don't think it's about that. I think it's a, it's, it's a certain perspective on the necessity of rules mm. and, and the, the mindset that if I don't know what a rule is for, I'm going to remove it. So G.K. Chesterton has this, this very famous... Uh, kind of contrast that he draws between people who tend to be right-wing politically and people who tend to be left-wing politically. He says people who tend to be left-wing politically, you're walking through a, you're walking through the woods and you come across a fence. And you don't know why the fence is there. And you say, I don't know why this fence is here. I'm removing it. And the person who's right-wing walks through the forest and sees the fence and says, I have no idea why the fence is here. I'm going to go find out why the fence is here and then maybe I'll remove it. And that's the, the kind of Burkean conservative attitude toward rules. The, the attitude that this rule was put here for a reason. Now, maybe the rule sucks. Maybe the rule has to go. But let's try and figure out what was at the root of the rule before we just wipe out all the fences and then try to rebuild from the ground up all these new fences. And that's especially true in a civilization that's the most prosperous and free civilization ever created. I mean, if the system really sucked, that would be one thing. But I think people are kind of ungrateful about the fact that we live in the best possible time in the best possible place. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just that, That's the reality. And everybody who's so negative about living in America, it's like, okay, in 1900... One in 10 American children died in the first year of life. In 1850, the average life expectancy in Europe was under 40. So what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like our biggest problems today, really, for, for the vast majority of people is that we are too fat or that we, are, we don't have a job, but we still have somebody who's basically making sure we have food. Like starvation is not a serious problem in the United States. There's a problem of poverty. But there's not a problem of widespread starvation. In fact, poverty tends to align with obesity. You know, the, this is a pretty unbelievably great society. So maybe we ought to look back at the roots of that society before we start willy-nilly tearing up all of the all of the moral boundaries. I think you and I agree that this is the greatest time ever to be alive. I think what these other folks are saying is that we can do better. 
and I think we all agree with that. But, yeah, sure. But to classify this time as being a terrible time is, I think, wholly inaccurate. By the way, I hate it right and left. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is I one of the too. reasons. It's I one of the too. reasons why I think there's a certain point where the Trumpian populist right meets the Bernie Sanders populist left, and mm-hmm. that is them walking around saying how much things suck. And it's like, no, no, that's just no. that's just wrong. Sorry. It's an amazing no. time. It's amazing time for communication too. It's amazing time for people to kind of understand other people's perspectives and points of view, which is one of the reasons why pl- deplatforming and uh, and silencing of conservatives, even though I'm not conservative, bothers the shit out of me. Yeah, I, I just think it's it's a it's a non harmonious action in a time that I think could lead to people having much more open and much more balanced communication. Well, I mean, this should be the time when we are having more conversations yes. and more fun with each other and, and where we are feeling more entrepreneurial. We have a yes. better social safety net than ever. So yeah. what, but what, one of the statistics that really bothers me is that the level of American mobility has declined rapidly in the United States. So the number of people who are leaving their home state to go somewhere else to work a job, for example, is at decades low. Why? It's easier to get anywhere. Now, there's 7 million unfilled jobs. I, I keep hearing from you know, folks who I you know, personally like, people like Tucker Carlson, uh, that you, know, you, you grew up in this small town and the town is dying, the industry left. Well, you ha- the, the government somehow owes it to you that you get to grow up in this town and stay in that town even if all the industry left. And I just think to myself, by whom? Who, who, who gave you this guarantee that you get to stay there? And I know, listen, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. I grew up in a two-parent household. We didn't grow up wealthy, but we were middle, middle class. Like, I grew up in a, a small house in Burbank with two bedrooms, and I had three sisters. So it was me and my three sisters in, in one bedroom and one bathroom for six people. That's not poor. That's middle class. That's a great life. And I understand some people don't have that life. But one thing that is guaranteed to you is the opportunity for adventure in this country. So go and move. Like, why, why are we inculcating a feeling of victimhood in a society where if you make the right decisions, you will do well. I mean, not you might do well. If you make basic, basic right choices, you will finish better than you started in American society. I mean, we're talking like the most basic choices, like finish high school and don't have a baby out of wedlock and get a job. Like you do those three things and the Brookings Institute says that you will not be in permanent poverty in the United States. Like that's amazing. That was not true for the vast majority of human history. For the vast majority of human history, you did all of those things. There wasn't high school, but you did all the other things. And then you lived like a serf on a farm until you died at age 37 of diphtheria or something. So it's, it's just uh, the, the lack of optimism in a society where it should be running rampant is, is kind of astonishing to me. Well, it's perspective, right? I mean, rich kids grow up with uh, this perspective of constantly being rich. And people grow up with this perspective of you know how they view the United States as this negative thing or that... They don't know how to change their life. They don't know how to take action because they haven't had anyone around them that's done it. And that's part of the problem with small town mentalities is that you kind of inherit the vibe of the people that are around you. And if they're ignorant or if they're, they're shallow-minded or if they're, they, they're stuck in this one town and they're never going to leave and you get caught in that vibe – you can one day wake up and you're 32 and you've never done anything. I mean, this is what J.D. Like, Vance fuck. talks about in Hillbilly Elegy, right? Yeah. The, the people who are in these small towns and they've basically been told that they have two choices. They can go on welfare or they can leave. Yeah. And it's like, okay, fine, I'll go on welfare. You yeah. know, everybody around me is. Why, why not? There's nothing morally deficient about going on, on welfare. Yeah. It, it's actually one of the, the bigger problems I have with the welfare state generally is that it disconnects the person receiving the aid from the person giving the aid. Yeah. One of the, like in, in our religious community, to take an example, there, there's a time a few years back where a guy came to me. I'd bought some art from him. He's a, an artist. And uh, 
really does good work. He came to me and he said, my family doesn't have enough money to make the rent this month. Can you offer me in advance on art that you'll buy somewhere down the road? And of course, I'm like, sure. So I signed him a check. And he understood that five years later, he came back to me and he said, you know, you still haven't bought that piece of art. I owe you a piece of art because he knew who gave him the money. Right, right. And so he was willing to understand that that was an act of charity and he wanted to make sure that that, that was paid back. You see this in Cinderella Man, right, with Russell mm-hmm. Crowe, that the moment where he makes money, he walks back into the welfare office and he rolls out a wad. Yeah. Right? Like that, that feeling that the government isn't just a giant cash machine that is, exists to pay you money. But that, that money actually comes from somewhere, either it's coming from the future because we're going to have to pay back the debt, or it's coming from somebody's tax money, and that we all owe something to each other. Right. And by the same token, the, what, what I owe to my neighbors is that if they're in trouble, then it is my obligation as a good person to try and help them out on a personal level. Yes. Right? And the charity in religious communities is extremely high. That's, that's the social fabric that I'm talking about. Yeah. Without, without that sort of dutiful sense to one another, you can't have rights. Because if you just have rights then, and, and no duties, then there will be no one to take care of each other. It's why, while I'm libertarian when it comes to government, I'm very conservative when it comes to the need to build a social fabric and communities and, and, and have people with working families and, and communities of working families. Yeah, I, I really think that that's one of the best things that comes out of religion is when you have a tight-knit community like yours and you do have that sense of charity where you really are a community of people that care for each other and look out for each other. The problem is, of course, doing that large scale. And then the problem is doing it in some sort of a non-denominational way where people, they, they don't have to have the exact same beliefs, but they still share these core values of community and taking care of each other. I mean, that's what people really benefit from. When they've done studies with people, when they show happiness and what is happiness correlated with, it's almost always correlated with friends and loved ones and family. Right. It's the most important thing you can have. And when it comes to diversity, you know, there's this slogan that diversity is our strength. Well, there's a Robert Putnam is a sociologist over at Harvard. He wrote an entire book about the social fabric called Bowling Alone. He was kind of the, the pioneer in the idea of social capital. And what he said is that he went in with the, to writing this book with the idea that diversity is our strength. And then he did some research. And what he found is that ethnic diversity only correlates with two things. And these are his words. Increased TV watching and increased protest marches. That's all it, it – unless, unless it is within the boundaries of a common goal. So if you walk into a church, very diverse ethnically, everybody's got – the same general goal, which is we're worshiping God in one particular way, and we believe in a certain core set of values, and now diversity is great. Your experiences come to bear. You're, you're all aiming in the same direction. He gives the example of the army. You see a bunch of people who go in, diverse group of people, diverse races, different backgrounds, and when you talk to those guys while they're serving or after they leave, they don't give a crap about the diverse backgrounds of the people they were serving with. They're all aiming their guns in the same direction. Well, in the United States, we have to be aiming our guns in the same direction, or we can't really have a functioning social fabric at all. Like, I'm perfectly willing to give charity to people who I don't know, who still believe, like I do, that America is a fantastic country rooted in immutably good principles. But that starts to break down when I'm being asked to give charity, just on a personal level, to somebody who believes that America is fundamentally evil and needs to be torn out at its roots and replaced with something better. Right? Yeah. The, because now we're not aiming in the same direction. So on a human level, I care about you. But on a, but on a social level... If I have a choice between somebody who basically agrees with me about fundamental values and somebody who is diametrically opposed, I'm going to give my money to the person who basically agrees with me on those fundamental values. And again, I don't think those fundamental values have to be religious. I don't think you have to be a God believer to receive charity from me, or I don't think I should have to be a, an atheist to receive charity from you. But I do think that you do have to take into consideration a few things, and now we're on the same page. Personal responsibility, the idea that you do live in a free country, just historically and relatively speaking, this is a free country, which means decision-making is on you. 
So man up a little bit. That that the decisions that you make, we should all have sympathy for people who have had worse lives and worse experiences. But in the end, if you are capable, if you are not fundamentally disabled in some way, that you need to make a plan for your own life. And then you need to do that. Like, are you more willing to give charity to somebody who has a plan for how to get themselves out of the hole? Of course. Or some, of course. Yeah. That, but that relies on that person feeling an obligation to do that. But I also think that what you're talking about with, with charity within the community is so much more, there's so much more connection than charity from the government. When you're talking about welfare, the problem is that there's this dissolving of responsibility because it's just a check that comes in that you feel like, well, this is a rich country. I'm owed this anyway. The, right. The, the, and, you know, and when I was a kid, we were on welfare and we, we used food stamps. And I, I remember being very ashamed of it and feeling really weird that we were that poor, that we needed help from the government. But my parents worked their way out of it. They were young, they had a kid. My guess is that was, the, my guess is that the the social stigma probably has something to do with that. Meaning that I'm sure. you didn't they didn't want to be on welfare. No. They didn't want to be on food stamps. No. Like contrast your story with Adam Carolla's, right? Ad, Adam talks all the time about how his parents were also on food stamps and welfare and they just didn't give a shit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they were just and he always resented that. He thought that was bad. Yeah. He said like you could work, why aren't you? And that gave him the impetus to get up and do what what Adam has done. So, right. you know, that that kind of it's not pick yourself up by the bootstrap because Helping hands are good, but it is if I if I were capable of picking myself up by my bootstraps, would I do so? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then we're all on the same team. Well, there's this is a real problem too, in that some people just get a horrible hand dealt to them for sure at at birth. They're with parents that really are doing a terrible job raising them. They're fucking them up every step of the way. You're around a bunch of people that are criminals. Everybody's fucking up. There's no examples of anybody that's doing well. I mean, it's one of the unique things about the internet today is that a kid that's in that environment can get a hold of uh, maybe something that you've said or something that, you know, someone else has said and start reading books and start taking in information that gives them a different perspective and fuel that perspective with more motivational stuff and more information and education. And sometimes kids, just like you were saying with Adam Carolla, they they grow up with these parents that are, are just not ambitious at all. So they become very ambitious and they work very hard to not be like them. I mean, sometimes it's good to see that example, but most of the time it's, it's just fucking hard for them to reprogram their head. Well, for sure. It's hard to do that. And it's also hard. I, I really think that there's, there's a lot of focus in the country right now on raising awareness, which is fine. You know, raise, raising awareness of our history and all the bad things that we've done. Yeah. Good. I mean, people, people should know about all the good things and all the bad things, right? Yeah. It's, it's, history is history. But this, this incessant focus on the idea that people's lives are getting better by suggesting that they're perennial victims in the United States, I just don't. I don't understand how that's a good thing. Yeah. Like, as as a historically a member of a historically persecuted group, if I had grown up and my parents had said to me, no matter what you do, you will be put under the thumb of the dominant society, that's a pretty horrible message to tell to a kid. And yeah. I think that's true for politicians, again, on both sides of the aisle. I think you get it from, from President Trump when it comes to some rural areas where it's like, well, it's the Mexicans and the Chinese coming in to steal your jobs, and you're under the thumb of, of people who are trying to destroy you. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the aisle, people who say, well, you're, you're in the inner city, and therefore the cops are racist against you and want to destroy you, and everybody's out to get you. And it's like, well, how about this? How about, like, again, the single best thing you can do for yourself is make basic decisions that are entirely within your control. Okay, unless you are unless you are raped, God forbid, single motherhood is a choice that you get to make about your life. This is a choice you get to make about your life. Finishing high school, unless you are legitimately disabled in some way, 
I mean, especially in LAUSD, where you basically have to be able to read at third grade level to finish high school. You know, just, just like these are, these are decisions, personal decision making. If you want, I've never seen somebody's life get better by complaining about reality. I've seen a lot of people's lives get better by acknowledging that reality is what it is and then making personal decisions to make their lives better. And that's considered non-compassionate. But it seems to me the, the essence of compassion sometimes is saying, at least make the baseline decision. If you make the baseline decisions and then you fail, we can talk about what happened. I don't think it's non-compassionate. I think it's pragmatic, and I think you're right. But I also think that there's some people that are they're in situations that require something external to, to assist them. They're, they're the way their life has been set up. And this is what I think when people think about compassion and people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps – if you have a real if you really have an honest and accurate assessment of extreme poverty and terrible neighborhoods it's not as simple as do something good to better your life part of it is you got to fucking stay alive part right. of well, it that's, is you're true. surrounded by people who either have committed crimes or will commit crimes. You I mean, one out of every four people you run into might be a criminal in the worst neighborhood in the country. Well, this right? is what, for sure. And, but I think we have to, this is where we recognize what government is good at. Government is good at two things. Cutting, other people, cutting checks from other people's money. They're great at it. Mm. And they'll seize, they're right on top of those parking tickets, by the way, to make oh, sure that the they best can. At it. I mean, they're, they're amazing at it. So seizing your money and, and paying money, they're very good at. And, and pointing a gun at people, right? These are the two things that government was built to do, was, was collect taxes and pay out money and then point guns at people, right? This is what right. government does. So which of those two things would you apply in a situation where there's just a complete lack of social capital? Because cutting a check isn't going to do it alone. Where does that check go? To the parents who are not doing, not able to protect their kids? Mm-hmm. It's one thing if you're enabling the parents to move out of that community or something. Right. Um, but that's why I say you have to attach if you're going to do the government welfare thing, you got to attach it to a plan. It can't just be here's a check, enjoy your life. Because right, but what is the plan? Like if I, you're I don't in think one uh, of those terrible communities, you live in an apartment complex. So I mean, here's the reality. I think that the plan very often, when it comes to a crime ridden area, is the other side of what the government does, which is you need more cops in that area. Like, I think that the the great lie that the, that these communities that are crime ridden. I'm talking about white Appalachia, and I'm talking about yes. you know, black inner cities. These these communities do not need fewer cops. They need more cops. Because the precondition to investment in those communities and increased tax dollars in those communities and increased social capital in those communities is people not getting shot every five seconds. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why the, the worst thing that can happen to law-abiding minorities is for the cops to abandon areas where crime is high. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's not just me saying that. Jane Levy, who's a reporter at the LA Times, very much on the left, has said the same thing. Law-abiding people want crime rates to go down. Like, conditions have to change right. in a community for conditions to change in the community. Did you ever see the wild, uh, the whites, the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia? No. It was a. Was it Johnny Knoxville? Did he produce that documentary? I think he did. Right, dude. It's about this family that lives in West Virginia that is just a bunch of psychotic criminals. These these crazy white people. The the kids drinking Mountain Dew and doing backflips on the bed, and they're all on pills. It's bananas, and it gives you this insight. Like if you are in this community. If you were in this family, and this is obviously a very yeah. extreme family, but there's many more of them out there that have not been documented. If you are in that community, good fucking luck getting out. Right. Good luck. The, the, the money that you get other than welfare is from selling pills. You know, everybody's on these pills, so you're all whacked out. You don't know what the fuck is going on half the day. You're on opiates. I mean, it is a 
bananas environment. And there's a lot of people like that in this country. Yeah, for sure. In, in poor Latino communities, in poor white communities, in poor black communities. The idea that these people are just going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is crazy. I just think they don't have a plan. And I think if we really want to help them, there's got to be some way where you can give these people the opportunity to step out of that pattern. Whatever that community centers, outreach programs, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. I mean, the the truth is, the truth is that historically speaking, it was people actually going to church. Yes. I mean, and and there may There's a good, lot of good. I'm not a church going person. Right. But I absolutely recognize that there's a lot of good involved in having that framework. Right. And and that, that, I'm not sure that that's, I don't think you can create sort of a fake social fabric with just. A government welfare system like it just it, does, it hasn't right. worked i mean disability exists it's been increasing think... every year it's it's not this is it's a question i asked andrew yang actually so our, our episode comes out on sunday and obviously andrew is a, a big fan of ubi universal yes. basic income and i'm not averse to the idea of ubi in a future where legitimately 50 percent of the population can't work because they've all been automated out of existence and all of this but there's one section in his book where andrew talks about how if we cut people a check for ubi then they will spend their extra time creating art and engaging in hobbies that they like. And I just thought to myself, I mean, I said it to him, like, people are on disability. That ain't what they're doing. Right? I mean, if you're on disability, the people you're talking about who are suffering, they're not out there writing poetry. Right? I mean, the, the, the rise of the opioid epidemic and people who are ODing on drugs and, and all this stuff, that's in precisely the same demographic you're talking about. You're just talking about a check from one place as opposed to another place. I don't, I don't really see how that solves the problem. I think we have a crisis of purpose yes. right now. And I don't think that that crisis of purpose is solvable on the one hand by changing our trade rules. And I also don't think that that crisis of purpose is solvable by, by cutting a, a, a government check. I just don't think that that's how people are wired. I absolutely agree with you that there is a crisis of purpose. My concern is about automation and my concern. And obviously I haven't really studied this other than talking to Andrew Yang and talking to Elon Musk and a few other people that are proponents of universal basic income. They think that there's going to be such a massive loss of jobs in such a short period of time from people that are non-skilled laborers. And it's going to go away. There's millions and millions of jobs, and these people are not going to have anything, and that it could be chaos. Right. So there's there's two problems that come up there, and this is where Andrew's book is interesting. Because problem number one is that the people will be poor. They won't have a source of income. Yes. UBI solves that. The other problem, Sort of, but does it even? It gives them $1,000 a month. Even if you upped it, right? I mean, even, yeah. even if you just had a Swedish redistribution system and, and the average tax rate went up to 60% mm-hmm. or something. It, it might, let, let's say we could solve the money problem okay. for a second, which, you know, without tanking the economy, which is questionable. But let's say we could do that. We could add trillions of dollars to the budget every year and we could solve that. I'm still not sure that that solves the deeper problem, which is that when people lose jobs, they lose purpose. Yes. Right? So I'm not sure that UBI solves that problem. It does. As I say, we have, we have a rich social welfare network in the United States and we're seeing this stuff happen anyway. You know, I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little bit less catastrophic by a little bit. I mean, a fair bit less catastrophic in my thinking about automation than than either Andrew Yang or Elon Musk. Do you think that people will be able to adapt quick enough to to avoid the problems? They'll realize the jobs aren't there anymore, and they'll just naturally gravitate towards other professions. I think, I think over time that people will do that, but they're not always the same people. Right. I mean, there's always shift in the economy, and the the ideal economic model has a trucker becoming a coder, right? But that's that's not real. Well, that was that whole learn to code fiasco right. that got people kicked off of Twitter, right? And it, Still as does soon as it was, apparently. Yeah, apparently, if you say it to journalists, then that's that's very bad. If you say that's learn to code to a trucker, yeah, that, that's what it was. That's you what say it was. Learn to code to a trucker. If you say learn to code to a trucker, then that's just you being helpful. Right. If you say learn to code to a journalist, <laughs> then that is targeted harassment on Twitter. That's where what that if someone started. says it to me. Well. 
How does I mean, that work? Twitter doesn't care about you. I can say whatever I want to you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think that. But if you just say it to a friend, hey, fuckface, learn to code. They, they, I don't know. Is your what friend going to report you to the, to the <laughs> censorship board over at Twitter? It's such a dumb thing to take people out for. It's one of the best examples of like how censorship ste- oversteps its boundaries and becomes almost like satire. Yeah, like, it's it's real. It's really really the idea absurd. That, like this is the biggest aggression ever. Learn to code. Learn to code. Like and- that's something. Like. This is a, a stupid thing that someone said about coal miners. They right. literally said that about coal miners, that maybe they can learn to code. And so everybody's like, what the fuck? And so learn to code <laughs> became a joke and became something that you would mock people. Right. Their, their explanation for it was so crazy. It was like, no, then learn to code got connected with white all this white supremacy and, and all this other stuff. Well, that, that's, the, well that's, that's, the, that's the Hitler owned a dog yes, argument, right? Exactly. That's the, it's like dogs are bad. Hitler owned one. Okay, yes. white supremacists are bad. They used the phrase learn to code. That means if you say learn to code, you're a white supremacist. Like, what the? That's what how are they you? lost the frog that fucking frog the feels good man frog that's what happened to pepe they exactly. lost him they, they became... killed the frog they turned the freaking frog gay i mean what yeah it but... is... oh that's yeah uh, but is... yeah i mean as, as far as automation um you know the, there's constantly people saying this is the the nicholas nassim talib view of reality which is that the black swan incident can happen any any second so watch out for it mm-hmm. versus the sort of steven pinker view of reality which is the black swan incident is called a black swan incident because it's a black swan incident, meaning that it happens incredibly rarely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the idea that we are on the verge of a catastrophic drop in job numbers because of the automation of trucking, for example, I, I'm not sure that I buy it. The reason I don't buy it is because you still are going to need someone sitting behind the wheel of that truck. There are human drivers on the road. Uh, it's gonna, there will be a gradual transition away from some of these jobs. Andrew Yang talks about radiologists and how radiologists are going to be priced out of the market by computers that can do a better job of diagnosing tumors. First of all, awesome. Right? I mean, that's, that's good. First of all, that brings down cost and you won't get cancer as advanced. So that would be, that'd be a good thing. Mm. But second of all, what, what a lot of technology studies have, have tended to show is that technology just gets integrated in a different way in, in particular careers. So there will be jobs that are eliminated for sure. There will be jobs we haven't heard of that will be created also. And mostly technology will, will become more of a productivity aid to, to people. So this is true in factories. Jobs have been lost in factories. It's the best example of where jobs are lost, but it's mostly true in offices, right? How many office jobs have been created because you have computers. Would so, more office jobs exist because I write by hand? Do you think that this is akin to like a government bailout? Like the idea of the government bailout was like the banks are too big to fail. And some people thought, you know what? You got to let them fail so you figure out why they failed and we'll never have it happen again. If there is this thing and the government steps in and says, wait a minute, I know you lost all your jobs. We're going to give you $1,000. You don't have to figure it out. $1,000 a month, and some people go, okay, I'm not going to figure it out now. Whereas those people might have gone on a, a, a fear-filled journey to try to figure out their purpose in life because now they're, they're stuck where their job doesn't exist anymore, so they're put well, there, in the corner, are, I mean, and they have to act. There is, there is enervation that comes from, from a welfare check. I mean, there are people who become dependent on government, and they're used to being yes. dependent on government. I mean, that, that stuff is true. It does happen. I mean, and... Listen, Milton Friedman made an argument for universal basic income as a replacement for the welfare system. Mm-hmm. There, there is another problem with universal basic income that I asked Andrew about also, and that was you know, one, of the, one of the big issues is that poor people very often, people who are permanently impoverished, not people who are temporarily poor, but they tend not to spend money where we think they ought to spend money. Right? They're right. not taking that money and they're not putting it into education or into their, They might just be buying ho-hos and cigarettes. Right. I mean, the, the, average, the average person who is making less than, I think it was $16,000 a year, is spending $400 a year on lottery tickets. Right? I mean, that's legitimately yeah. just flushing your money down the toilet. Yeah. So, it's, so how do you 
aren't you just going to end up back in the same place you, you know, in six months where people took that money and used it in ways that actually didn't benefit them? And at a certain point, the question is, are your, do you own your decisions or do you not own your decisions? And at what level of incompetence or inability do we say, you no longer own your decisions and so we're just going to take care of you on a permanent basis? That's, that's really the, the, the question here. I think, I think we're looking at, uh, when you're talking about welfare, we're looking at worst case scenario, right? Where someone does get dependent upon the welfare state and does use that money frivolously and does make poor decisions. But then there's got to be other people that are single moms that, you know, maybe had a kid with some fucking asshole that doesn't want to pay and, and yeah. is a piece of shit and they have to hide from them and they're just trying to feed their kids. Yeah, for those, sure. Those, those people exist too. 100%. And they don't have a community to, to, to help them out. Maybe they're not a part of a church. Then maybe they don't have a good group of neighbors. Maybe they had to move somewhere for work and they got stuck in some place where they don't know for anybody. Sure. But it, I, I think part of this is to, to recognize that incentives matter on both ends. So the idea is that you give some people more money and they'll, they'll do well. It's mm-hmm. also true that if you create a welfare system that benefits single motherhood, you will get more single motherhood. I mean, the, the single motherhood rate in the black community before welfare was 20%. Now it's 70%. In the white community, it was like 5%. Now it's 40%. Now you've said that like, out of wedlock children and having a kid when you're young is like it's a terrible idea for your life but what do you recommend to have kids avoid that are you one of those people that thinks don't put it there without that thing on it no condoms is what you're saying right like don't don't have don't don't have unprotected sex i mean like this this is not it's not pardon my my fake cursing it's not effing rocket science i mean like like, (laughs) you're apologizing for not cursing i'm apologizing for not cursing uh yeah it's 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 not rocket science this one always bothers kids make mistakes and i mean that's what happens well okay well but and then if the government pays for those mistakes it becomes less so what should what should happen should the the kids suffer so the the who no i mean how should it be i mean how should it be worked out i mean it it depends on the situation you know if, if there are parents available to the kid presumably the parents the grandparents mm-hmm. would take a pretty active role in the in the raising if they of can. that kid. Let's also, assume they they're there. Well, how about this? How about we assume that if you are old enough to get pregnant, then you are old enough to uh, let's let's talk about a seventeen year old or eighteen mm-hmm. year old. Used to be shotgun marriages were a thing, uh, <laughs> and uh, and really, you like, think that's a good idea? I, I think the idea of parents staying together for the sake of a kid that they accidentally bore is absolutely a good idea. Yes, yeah. I think that I think that is a better idea than the man walking away and the kid being without a, a, a man in the house. So you for the think rest of their childhood. the parents I know a lot of should people, figure a way to work it out? Yes, and if they were both reasonable, they could do that. Yeah, and I think that that by the way, a huge percentage of American births in the '40s and '50s were exactly this. There were a lot of seven-month babies mm. in the '40s and '50s. Yeah, like something like thirty to forty percent of all kids born in the '30s and '40s and '50s were seven-month babies. Where somebody got knocked up, and then right. the, the expectation was now you're gonna like you did the you did the crime now you do the time right I mean like you, yeah you did but this. that puts people in relationship prison good then don't then don't then don't have sex then don't 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 find, find somebody uh, find find somebody How to have sex dare with you find somebody to have sex with who you actually think is worthy of a relationship right now or online you, pornography is available to you like figure it out you're okay with that um, on a moral level. Yes. No, but if I'm going to if I'm going to compare that to having a baby out of wedlock, then yeah. This is what I think about pornography. They could stop now, and we're good forever. <laughs> but yet they keep, they keep making it. Like I think you guys enjoy there, there's it. No, there's no supply and demand problem. I think in, in you pornography. like it. I think you like making it. You guys are a bunch of freaks. <laughs> if, 
I mean, there's no. It's like a business. Is, it's almost like you have excess houses that stack up to the moon. <laughs> like there's no way everyone's gonna live in all those houses. Why do you keep making houses? There's no way one person is ever jerked off to every video that ever existed. It doesn't. It's not possible. It's like, it, <laughs> and it's also like other forms of media where they just stack up. Like I never really thought of that until when you have the backlog of internet pornography and you're like god I'm, you know I'm a month behind now but just think about music right there's all the music that existed before in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and there's new shit every goddamn day it never ends it's this overwhelming library of stuff that we have to experience well, it, it, would, it would be good if, if that music changed from time yeah. to time the, the same song recorded seven different ways you know it uh, what kind that, of shit do you listen to what do you think I listen to? Did I listen I to know. classic jazz and classical? Of Did course, you? of course, yeah. You're so, you're so interesting. To I, me. I, I was I was a concert level violinist until I was until I was like 17. Years do you old. still practice? Yeah, I mean the, the only expensive object that I own other than my house is is a violin. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it a Stradivarius? It is not. It is. It is a. Uh, it's not. That's all uh, I know. Uh, yeah, so, so, that's uh, yeah. The two that people may know are Strad and, and like a Guarneri, um, but those those ones are like hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is in the tens of thousands of dollars. A Stradivarius um, is hundreds of thousands of uh, dollars. Yeah, I, I had a, a guy who we knew, my family knew, he had a million dollars Stradivarius. <gasps> yeah, now, what was so big about it? What was the big deal? Uh, well, I mean, aside from the historic value of the thing, they're not making any more of them. Um, it, it does play very differently. I mean, yeah. very differently. Like I had a crappy violin for most of my. Like really until the last two years, I had a, a violin that was handed down from my grandfather that was worth maybe thirteen hundred bucks, and it was a piece of crap. I mean, it was a not a good violin. If you're good enough, then you can tell the difference between a really great violin to play and one that is a piece of garbage. And I was good enough to do that, so that's yeah. I mean, I, I was a, I was a classical guy. I, I played I played violin for years. And my dad was a growing up. My dad was a pianist. Look he, at what Jamie just pulled up. The most expensive violin in the world sold for an estimated $16 million yep. for a Stradivarius. They never lose value. I mean, really, they don't. This wow. is, this is, it's a good investment. The, the person, uh, I know that a guy who was, offered a, he was offered a Strat at, I think it was $250,000 maybe 10 years ago. And he's like, no, that, it's worth like $3 million today. God, no, what is the deal? Like, what, if you had to explain what's the difference between the sound that this makes? So... I mean, it has to do with the acoustics of the instrument, meaning the wood quality. There's there's slight variations in the construction of the instrument. Uh, certain parts of it are, are thicker or thinner, um, and it is also it's easier to play a better violin. So it, it almost covers for your mistakes. When you play a, a bad violin, it tends to scratch and screech more. That's why when you get in the upper register with a violin, you hit very high notes. It can either be very screechy or it can be very beautiful. Some of that. A lot of most of that's the player. Some of that's the violin. Like mm. Yasha Heifetz, who's widely considered the greatest violinist to, to ever live, uh, he had a Strad. Look and, at this. Uh, uh, Lady yeah. Blunt Stradivarius cost fifteen point nine million dollars. People buy these and then they lend them out on on loan to you know world's great violinists. So, God, but there's so a but it, in the end, it really is the uh, the quality of the player. There's a famous Yasha Heifetz story where he was playing at Carnegie Hall and some lady came up to him afterward and she said. You know, your violin, it just, it sounds so beautiful. And he picks up the violin, puts it to his ear, and he says, funny, I don't hear it right now. <laughs> <laughs> so do you listen to any other kind of music? Yeah, I mean, I, I, like, like, I like some classic rock. Do you? Uh, Look, yeah, I, I mean, can see you rocking out. Yeah, I, I went to a Doobie Brothers concert <laughs> with my parents. No, you uh, didn't. Yeah, yeah, really? Fun. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, a band that was main, named after a joint. That is true. That's outrageous. That is accurate. I know. Did you feel like a like a sinner? I was I was a rebel that day. I was really <laughs> <laughs> going to the Dewey Brothers concert with the other boomers. So the other thing is uh, same sex marriage. That's mm -hmm. the other thing that I think that we disagree with. 
Well, I we agree with the marriage thing. Right, on, on a governmental level. I don't think the government level. should be involved. Mm-hmm. They don't, I think where people should be protected is through assets and, you know, the... Contract. Yes. And, yeah. I think that, that all makes sense to me. That all that stuff in terms of, like, uh, alimony and child support and all those things make sense to me. And, that, and the idea that the community reinforces it, which would then become the government reinforced and all that stuff, that all makes sense to me. I understand it. But um, why do you care if uh, two gay guys want to get married? Um, so, from a religious point of view, sure. Let's go from uh, religious so, first. So, I mean, why don't we do a secular point of view first? So, okay. the the idea is not that I care deeply whether two gay guys want to get married to each other. The idea is that it, do I prefer traditional marriage to to same sex marriage? Okay. Well, let me let me phrase it this way. What do you think a gay guy is? Do you think someone's they're making a choice? Or do you think that this is how they were born? So the religious point of view on this, and, and I think this is actually just the general conservative point of view on human action generally, mm-hmm. is I don't know. Meaning that for the vast majority of people, I would assume that they have a biological drive to, to right. engage in, in that behavior. But the traditional sort of will point of view is that biological drive does not necessarily match up to the activity you ought to engage in. Right? Men, for example, have a biological drive to impregnate many women. That's not something religion is cool with either. Right, so the the idea is that right, but religion is cool with a man being with one woman and impregnating her, but you're not cool with a man being with a man. So, I can give you the religious explanation, yeah, and I can please. give you the secular explanation. Okay. So the so the religious explanation is that there is something different about a woman than there is about a man, and a man is made better through his union with a woman, and that if you pervert the sex drive to pursue mere pleasure instead of a lasting relationship upon which the basis of society is built, then you are foregoing the proper use of your sex drive. Right, but if you wanted to step in and argue against that, you would say that just because someone can't get pregnant doesn't mean that they don't have uh, a loving relationship that contributes to society. Well, that's true, but it is also foregoing the more productive relationship of being able to bear and rear children. And but also and also recognizing that, that the sexes are not or... different, right? And, and recognizing also the sexes are not the same. Right. So, it, you know, being with a man is in a relationship different than being with a woman, I would assume. I mean, I assume that's why gay guys are gay. <laughs> if, if it weren't, then yeah. I assume that they would be fine with being with a woman. Right. Uh, so that's so that relationship from a from a religious perspective is more valuable because women have different qualities than men. You round off each other's harsh edges. It changes you. I mean, you're married. Being married changes a man in a different way that being married to a member of the same sex would. would. Right. But I don't want people to have to do it. But if you're, I, I, if you're, I'm not forcing anybody, right? But I want them to have the option. And if you're a gay person. And we to say you don't legally? know. No, I mean, of course, because legally, legally we agree, right? Yeah, legally. I, and I keep making this distinction because yes. whenever I talk about my moral perspective on things, mm-hmm. then people immediately assume that I'm a theocratic fascist, and right. I just want to keep underscoring yes, like my personal you. views on Dave Rubin's marriage mm-hmm. are of no consequence to public policy in any way whatsoever. Right. But I, I agree with you on that, and I don't think it should be a part of public, public policy, and I think people should absolutely be allowed to marry and divorce and do whatever the fuck they want to do, no matter who it is. But why do you care? Like, as a person who's a rational thinker, it's pretty clear that people are gay. And I don't really think that this is a, a decision they make in, term, in terms of, like, I'm going to make a clear choice to defy God and be gay. I think they're just gay. Well, again, I think that's a conflation of... I don't think of, it's everyone. It's a conflation of identity and drive with activity, which is something that religion fundamentally rejects. Okay. Right? So, so religion fundamentally rejects the idea that 
you are driven to do something. Therefore, right. it is your identity. Therefore, you get to participate in a behavior. That's it. That's a chain of thinking that religion. So, does in not religion, accept. if a man is gay. Mm-hmm. In your religion, yes. if a man is gay and they're in love with another man, they should just squash those thoughts and find a woman. Well, ideally, they would be honest with the woman they marry, so they're not like but, messing up but the woman. They but they would want to ideally, go and get ideally, a woman. you would still get married and have children in a heterosexual relationship. But if you're not up to that, then you wouldn't get married at all. To a, when you describe this to a gay man, they will tell you, "Imagine Ben Shapiro. If someone said to you, you." should stop being with your beautiful wife and you need to now marry a man because this is what God wants you to do. So you're going to have to stoop this man and he's going to stoop you. And because this is how the rules are set up. Yeah, so far this but sounds pretty he, terrible. Sure. Right. Well, this is how it sounds to gay folks when you're well, telling them they have to find a woman. And, and, like, and, I like well, dudes. I, I'm not saying you have to find a woman. I'm saying you can't, kind, well, I'm saying you can't do X, right? I'm not saying you but, must but find say a woman. But say can't, but by whose from, determination? If you decide to participate in this religion, right. then there is a buy-in to the precepts of the religion. And the buy-in is the buy-in you is can't that, be gay. Well, the, no, the buy-in is that you can have whatever sexual orientation you please, but there's certain activity you can't participate in. So you can be gay, but you can't have gay sex. Correct. That's the, By the way, that's what the, the Bible, I mean, if we want to go direct to the text right. of the Bible, that's what the Bible actually says, right? I mean, even the parts of the Bible that people really hate, mm-hmm. those parts say that a man shall not lie with a man. It doesn't say a man can't be attracted to another man. That's Old Testament, right? Isn't yeah, it? Uh, that, yeah. That's, right. That's our stuff, right? New, yeah. New Testament. It, it gets a little harsher in the New Testament in some places, Romans, Corinthians. Yeah. But in, in any case... You know, again, when it comes to this is what I'm puzzled by is the idea that this is a unique area of human behavior that religion is supposed to treat differently. Meaning religion treats virtually every human activity like this. Sin mm-hmm. is a failure to abide by a covenant, right? That's that's the definition of sin. Right. right? When, when you commit a sin in Judaism, in Avera, in Judaism, what you are doing is failing to do a mitzvah, which is a commandment. You're violating a commandment. Well, there are lots of commandments that go directly against what people are driven to do. Just because the drive is stronger does not make it morally, more morally non-culpable to violate mm-hmm. that commandment. So w- when people pick this one out and they say, well, this one is particularly intolerant, for example, uh, I don't see why it's more particularly intolerant than saying to a man that you have to marry one woman or saying to a Jew that you are not allowed to eat this stuff. Or it, like, it's, it may be harder I don't think there's any question. It's harder to abide by those commandments, but it is well within religious tradition, like literally every religious tradition, that there's a bunch of stuff you are driven to do that you can't. Now, again, you don't have to agree with my program. I'm not trying to convert you. This is one of the nice things about my religion. I don't give a crap whether people are Jewish or not. Like, we we actively discourage converts. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to proclaim that you are, you know, abiding by traditional Judaism, this is the buy-in, right? There's lots of buy-in. You have to wear a funny hat sometimes. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to go to shul on Saturdays. You have right. to keep Shabbat. Like, there's, there's a lot of buy-in. And as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, I, I frankly don't see what business it is of legitimately anybody's, what I think about personal relationships. I'm not imposing my view on anybody else. Well, um, I, I do acknowledge that out of all the religions, Judaism probably makes it the, the most obvious. They don't give a fuck what you do. Go ahead. Do your thing. Like, they're not trying to We're proselytize. We're doing our business. You're doing your business. My That's- uncle converted. And uh, when he converted, it was a grind, man. He had to learn a lot of shit. It's like three years of a grind. <laughs> it's yeah. a long time, Yeah, for man. sure. It's a long time. So that was the but, religious perspective. And the, and the secular perspective, when yeah. it comes to valuing traditional marriage over, over same-sex marriage, that's a very simple calculation, which is one type of marriage produces traditional children, uh, produces children in the traditional biological way, and then you have mm-hmm. both parents in the house to take care of the kid. 
Right. That, that's the value of marriage. And, and I fully acknowledge that when the value of marriage shifted from it's about production and rearing of children to it's two people who love each other, the case for same-sex marriage against same-sex marriage went completely out the window. Right. So you are just sticking to your rigid ideology in terms of like what you believe to be a sin and not believe to be a sin based on re- your religion, based on this very strict moral fiber that this religion is operating in a religious there. context. Meaning, religious it applies concept. to me, it applies to my family, is, it doesn't apply to you, right? But and, is there any room for growth in that when people have a better understanding about biology? Like it, it so once, if if it was proven, if there's proven, like oh, this is why a person develops blue eyes. This is why a person is gay. This is why. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. It's just a variation. No, it's it's, it's, it, it's yeah. red hair. It's freckles. It's gay. It's straight. You can tell me that that homosexual orientation is a hundred percent biologically driven, and I will almost completely agree with that. I think that there are some cases where it's not, but those are rare. But this do you particularly think that, true, by, by the way, the research tends to show that there's more sexual fluidity among females than males. Males, it tends to be either heterosexual or homosexual. That right? research is all done by dudes who want their wives to hook up with chicks, but <laughs> keep going. <laughs> don't, don't let me stop you. But <laughs> Honey, let me just show you the paperwork. <laughs> but, There's something but, wrong. But again, that it, it's, it's a question that I've always found actually not particularly interesting simply because it doesn't take into account the worldview generally, which is that a biological drive does not equal excuse for behaving in a certain way. But, but this, that's where it brings me back to this. Like, is it possible that these laws in this religion were written when they're what? I mean, who do you think wrote the stuff? Do you think people wrote the stuff or do you think God wrote the I stuff? I think either way, even if it were, it, it, I mean, because I am a an Orthodox Jew, mm-hmm. I believe that at the very least it's God inspired and God written. Right, But even if I believed on a secular level that human beings wrote that stuff, do I think that people 3,000 years ago had never seen a gay person before? Do, do or a person who had homosexual tendencies? Like the very reason to have a commandment is because certain people in your community are behaving in a particular way, presumably. Right. There's no commandment not to take your head and shove it in a meat grinder. Well, this is also the argument against pork. is because they didn't understand trichinosis. They understand you have to cook the meat to 145 degrees and pork parasites, which are very dangerous for people. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of naturalistic explanations for religion. Don't you think that's a good one, though, for pork? I mean, uh, I don't know. Like, I think you could make an argument, maybe. There's a kid who just died in India, and there's horrific x-rays of his head. He had uh, parasites from pork that had uh, gotten into his body, and they had uh, nested in his brain, started developing all these cysts inside of his head. And they couldn't do anything about it because it was so deep in his head that if they gave him the anti, um, you know, anti-parasitic uh, medication, it would cause swelling of the brain. And they were like, it was, it's, it was so. So how are you feeling about so bacon right now? Because you tell the story. It's actually pig shit. Apparently, oh, it's that the people accidentally great. coming in contact with pig shit produces this particular type of parasite. Yeah, that's not it's, kosher either. It's more rare. But, yeah, but, but trichinosis was pretty common well, for again, a long time. Uh, the, their attempts to sort of paint back into the Bible certain rationalistic explanations. Doesn't, like this doesn't was, that make sense, though? Um, I, I think. Why it, else would you? Would it be bad to eat pigs? Like Jesus loves pigs. Is that what's going on? Uh, well, I, I think that the the reversal of the kosher laws in the New Testament. You know, from from a Jewish point of view, where we don't believe in the divinity of Christ, I right. think that the, there you can make an argument that the. The Gospels, which were written, he was just a signifi- prophet. In, right? signifi- no, no, no. We don't How even believe he was a prophet. What do you think he was? What do you guys? I, think I, he I was? mean, I, what I what do I think he was historically? I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble, just like a lot of other Jews at that time who were crucified mm. for trying to lead revolts against the Roman and got killed for their trouble. So he became legend and story, and it became a bigger and bigger deal as time yeah, went on. Yeah, he had a group of followers, and then mm. that gradually grew. And then do you think there he was, was resurrected? A, 
No, that's not that's not a, a Jewish belief. Okay, I just want to check. Yeah, no, or we're not into. <laughs> You're not we're into not into zombies? miracle stories. No, that's that's no? Not, no. You don't have any miracles. No, here? not 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 by Jesus. Right? No? There there are ones but in the Old Testament. Ones? Yeah, you've got Moses splitting the sea and all that. What do you think happened there? What do I think happened there? Yeah. Well, I'll go with the Maimonidean explanation that there was, a, I mean, it says in the Bible there was a strong east wind. Uh, so there's a naturalistic explanation for a physical phenomenon. That makes sense. I mean, that's, so, that's what Maimonides is constantly trying to do is read nature back into the Bible. Mm, yeah. That, that is the problem with these texts, right? Is that you're trying to decipher translations from original texts, which were written in ancient Hebrew thousands of years ago, and were told in an oral tradition for longer than that. Right. right? I mean, this is, this is where, you know, my, my book, which I always hesitate to pitch my own stuff because it sounds gauche. Pitch but, away. Uh, but the new book, The Right Side of History, <laughs> number one New York Times bestselling nonfiction book. Wait a minute. You got number one in the New York Times bestselling fi- Really? Yeah, we sold enough that we knocked Michelle Obama out of the number they, one slot for a week, so that was nice. Is there a protest? Uh, well, no protest yet, but suffice it to say the New York Times book reviewer didn't like it, but mm. I, I'm not super shocked by that. But the, the basic contention that I make uh, is that Judeo-Christian values on the one hand and then human reason on the other, Greek reason, really, that that tradition is a tension and that that tension is where Western civilization lives. That basically civilization is a suspension bridge. It takes certain fundamental precepts of Judeo-Christian values on the one hand and then takes Greek reason and they're pulling against each other. And sometimes reason feels like it's going to dominate religion. And sometimes it feels like religion is going to dominate reason. Mm. But in the best of all available worlds, you have a, a bridge that is that is capable of building upon where you can actually have a, a functional civilization. And if you lose reason in the name of theocracy, then you end up with tyrannical theocracy and if you lose and if you lose religion in the name of reason you end up in some pretty dark places because human beings don't have a very good track record of creating their own purpose creating their own meaning uh, creating their own systems we tend to get very utopian very quickly uh, right. and things get really ugly which is sort of the story of the particularly the first half of the 20th century so this is the benefit of sticking to the rigid ideology that's prescribed by religion is that you don't allow the human beings to keep updating it and changing it because if you do they will eventually slide into chaos well Yes, but there's there, which is not to say there's not play in the joints. Right? I mean, right. there, there's certainly religion has morphed over time. Mm-hmm, I mean, of Judaism as it was practiced originally, probably in many ways, does not resemble Judaism as practiced now. Right. I mean, in fact, the Talmud even says this. I mean, there's there's this kind of fascinating and counterintuitive section of the Talmud where um, Moses is it's it's. Uh, what is called the Gadata, which is some of these stories that are just kind of put into the into the middle of the Talmud, where Moses comes back and he's watching from on high as a bunch of rabbis in you know second century Palestine uh, are are talking about Judaism, and he's like, I don't recognize any of this stuff. Like I brought down these books from the mountain, and I do not recognize any of this stuff. And and God says to him, you know, God says to him, right? I mean, this is how this is morphed, and Moses is pleased. In other words, he he's not. Judaism has always had a common law tradition where you're using reason to try and develop the ideas behind the commandments and then try and extend them or broaden them. And I think that's a good thing, but you have to be careful not to completely undermine fundamental roots or, or get rid of basic precepts. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have, to, you have to acknowledge there are certain fundamental truths that exist there, and then there's play as far as how those are implemented. Does Judaism have one of those pray the gay away traditions is no there, that's not that's not a thing i mean it's what do they want guys to do like what say what would you do if not you were, to, not if, to not to sin but again sin yes. is a sin is a thing that everybody does mm-hmm. meaning that masturbation is not is not okay according to judaism i assume that a vast majority of young jewish men even the orthodox are masturbating so people sin i mean that's that's a recognition it's it's always 
again, I think I can speak on behalf of, I will audaciously speak on behalf of both Jews and Christians here. I think that religious people are, are told that when they say that something is a sin, this means that they are looking askance at the people who are committing the sin. And that is not correct. I mean, what Judaism and Christianity say is that we are all committing sins on a fairly regular basis. Where we get uptight is when people start saying, because I have a desire for the sin, the sin is no longer a sin. Hmm. Yeah. The, the, the real problem is, like, what? why is it a sin? Like, who says it's a sin? So, and again— who, who, the, Again, this, these rules, you were assuming, are influenced by God. Right. But clearly written by people. Well, the this one, you would say, if you're a fundamentalist, or at least somebody who believes in the, the idea that the Torah was given by God, was given literally by God. But, again, that doesn't—the the logic behind the rules, which, you know, people like Maimonides have tried to mm-hmm. explicate, the idea is, as I said— a secular, this you can do without God, right? This part you can do without God. The human sex drive was made to procreate within a stable relationship in order to progenerate and have future generations of people. Misuse of that sex drive in any way, whether you're talking about from masturbation to homosexual activity, is therefore a diminishment of the use of that drive. That's the natural law case against against homosexual activity. And again, I will reiterate for media matters for the one millionth time. I'm not in favor of any of this being encoded into American law because freedom is freedom. People should be able to sin how they choose so long as they're not harming anybody else. Right. No, but what about people that have had vasectomies? And what about women that also... Judaism is not cool with vasectomies. Not cool with it. And neither is Catholicism from what I understand. Right. Right. Yeah, well, I'm not a big fan of that one either. <laughs> <laughs> that one I have more experience with. But uh, so... If what if a man is sterile and the woman's sterile? Are they allowed to have sex? If so, they both know? So yes, because there are ancillary benefits to married couples having sex, like mm-hmm. relationship building. Right. But that's not a generalized case against the favored view of sex, right? Mm. F- f- that's that's sort of like arguing that intersex people mean that there's no such thing as two separate sexes. There mm-hmm. are two separate sexes, and also there. Are intersex people who have a condition. Yes. Right? And that, that's the same thing here. The, the case in favor of heterosexual sexual activity does not change based on the fact that some people can't actually participate in that. What would you do if a young gay guy came to you for advice? If someone said, hey, Ben, uh, I'm an, an admirer of yours. I, I love the way you think and uh, follow your philosophies, but I've, I've got a problem. I'm a young Jewish man and I'm gay and I don't know what to do. What would you tell him to do? I mean... I can't tell them to do anything. Meaning right. What, what, I, what, what I would can, you advise? Would you tell, would you what tell would, them to not act out on those feelings? I would say you do the best you can as a human being. And from my moral perspective, you try to avoid sin as best you can. Mm-hmm. But everybody sins. The problem is that sin, though, it seems to me that it was defined by people that didn't understand biology because they were dealing with humans that existed thousands of years ago, again, no books, I really, I, again, no real I, understanding of why people were gay. I mean, I, again, I, I really don't think that biblical commandments are linked, and, and religious commandments generally are linked to a view of biology, meaning that... You don't think so? No, I think that all sin is a recognition that we have drives that we are supposed to forego. Okay. That, that's pretty much, I mean, that's, that's fundamental to certainly Judaism. It's 
to Christianity as well, I would say. Islam even has, has this basic precept. Right, when I think we can agree that there's some real benefits to discipline. There's real benefits to having structure, and, and it doesn't mean that you can't be creative. It doesn't mean that you can't be free and do whatever you want some of the time, too. But I think we can both agree that this is one of the, one of the best benefits of an ideology, and one, hopefully one, a positive ideology. Right, and one, one of the things that I, I – the reason I keep coming back to the governmental regulation point is because – my view is that if your view of discipline is not my view of discipline, good on you. Right. right? Like, go, go do what you want to do. Like, I've never had a conversation with Dave Rubin about about him being a gay guy. Right, but you did it, say that you, like, wouldn't go to his marriage, right? Well, I said, right. As a, as a religious person, I can't say I, – I can't actively participate in something that I consider to be a sin. But I would go out to dinner with Dave and his husband any time. Like, my wife and I would do that, of course. We'd have him over to our house with his husband. There's no – you don't find any contradiction between your religious perspective and your personal perspective in that regard? That you would – you wouldn't be there for religious reasons, but that you would be there for personal reasons? Like, if it no, wasn't, if you, would you go to the after party? Like, if you wouldn't go to the wedding, would you go to the after party? Anything that was a celebration of same-sex marriage, no. Wow. So anything, but you like... You wouldn't even go to the party? No. I mean, that's it. <laughs> and that's, that, what I if mean, there was I'm, a barbecue the next day? Would you consider it <laughs> a tag on? <laughs> you know, it's... it's it, and again, like, I'm not sure why... I, I'm not a good party person so i'm not sure why anybody would want me at their party frankly I'm uh, you'd be a great party I've, but, i haven't been to a party with you but i went to a dinner party with you that's true we had a great time yeah, that was a good time that that's was a good time a, that's a funny picture man that is a wild people picture. don't know what the fuck to think about that picture <laughs> that when, is certainly it, true eric and jordan and sam and you and i it's like what all the white supremacists fuck? in one place right yeah, yeah. all the uh, yeah that that is a disturbing one when they'll just just lump you in with a bunch of fucking psychopaths just because it's convenient for them and it's an easy way to to diminish you that 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 is a that is a thing that i see more from the left than from the right and it's really disturbing i always thought until this clickbait generation came along i always thought that especially well you know the new york times is obviously the higher standard but that you would never see that kind of shit from progressive people you would never see willful distortion of reality to define their narrative in a really disingenuous way and it happens so often now yeah. that people get called my favorite is alt-right adjacent i don't even know what that means it doesn't they don't know what it adjacent. means no, it's they, a they new don't. thing it's a new thing people are trying out they're trying right. it out it might go away <laughs> it's it's Again, trying to lump everybody into one group for purposes of castigating their motives is yeah. really about this. You don't have to have an argument with somebody if you assume they're a Nazi. So I guess if you call everybody a Nazi, you don't have to have an argument. It is goofy. But, you know, I think when it comes to the, the gay marriage thing, what people really worry about is other people trying to stop people from doing what they want to do. You don't have that in you. That's not you. What you are doing is opposing it from your your religious beliefs. Right. Like, if you want to join into my shul, that shul has religious beliefs. Right. And that's their business. By the way, they're, like, I can't join a church, I assume. I don't believe the things that people in the church believe. You probably could if you donate. You got to give the right amount of money. <laughs> well, I don't believe in the Jesus, so there's the there's the that Jesus. Part. Yeah, <laughs> that's not my thing, right? I mean, so that's I, I wouldn't expect to walk into a mosque and expect them to change their their standards on religion. I, I find it really audacious when people actually expect other people to view the world the same way that they do, and then expect that they're going to be catered to in that way. Like I wouldn't walk into uh, I wouldn't walk into a gay owned bakery and expect them to bake a cake. 
that has verses from Leviticus on it. Like, that why would I do that? story is a weird story. You know, um, that bake a cake story because it gets bandied about. They Those folks went to several bakers until someone said no. This is correct. Yeah. They were looking for a court case. Yeah, and, well, yeah. and honestly, like, that's not you being a civil rights hero. That's you being a jackass. Seriously, like, go to the other bakery. What did yeah. these people do to you? They didn't have anything to do with you. They don't owe you their cake. And if you want to boycott them, boycott them, right? You want to get all your friends to say we're not going to go buy a cake from these discriminatory humans? Fine. It's a free market. Have yeah. at it. But this this notion that somebody owes you their services... That, that to me, it's not even a freedom of religion case to me. That one's a freedom of association case. Well, I think what the, the goal is is to shame a business into submission and also to, to put it out there in the public eye so that people understand that this is a discrimination that does happen with gay folks where they will go somewhere and someone won't make a cake for them. Right. You know, and so I think they wanted to highlight it. So if I was being very charitable and I, I didn't think they were being attention whores, I would say maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they're just trying to highlight this very real problem. That's fine, but they actually like took it to the government. Mm-hmm. Once you start pointing a government gun at people, I get real uptight. So again, if yeah, that's it was, a weird one. If yeah. you were if you were just to Yelp walk review, into, yeah, right, exactly. Yelp review blog. it, right. Talk about how much you don't like them. Fine, yeah. you know, like I I may disagree with you or I may agree with you. Whatever, that's that's fine. But once you start going to the government yeah. and having the government levy like hundred thousand dollar fines on family bakeries because yeah. they because you couldn't find a gay baker in Colorado, yeah. supposedly, like um, no, I'm sorry, that's that's not cool. And I feel the same way. I, if I walked into a bakery and they're like, you're Jewish, we're not serving you. I'd be like, okay, you're, you're an a-hole, but all right. I mean, it's free country and there's a bakery across the street. Or maybe I'll just open a bakery next door to you and take all your business. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate that anyone would ever think like that. But should it be a law to force someone to think differently? You can't. It doesn't work. This is, this is my point. Is it, you know, people will point to my, my religious too. beliefs and they'll be like, oh, you're a theocrat. And I keep coming back to... I'm not, though. Like, I don't want to force my beliefs on anybody. Right. My you belie- just have those beliefs. Those are my beliefs, so leave me alone. And yeah. those are your beliefs, so leave you alone. And if we can't have a system where we acknowledge that those beliefs can coexist and we can still have conversations with each other or be friends, it's going to be real hard to have a society. When you told Dave Rubin that you wouldn't go to his wedding, did he get butt hurt? No pun intended? No, he wasn't upset about it. No? No, because Dave and I uh, were friends. He knows that I have no anger or upset about him doing I would be whatever like, he what wants. the fuck, Ben? Come on, man. I don't know. I'm not a friends person, so I don't. Like, <laughs> you don't have any friends? I mean, I have friends, but they're it's like very close friends and then acquaintances. Mm. I tend to keep a pretty close social circle. That's smart. You have so much time in this life. That, that's pretty much how I feel. Yeah. Like, if you're the kind of person where it feels like a true obligation for me to drive you to the airport, oh, not a thing, man. I'm not driving you to the airport, Correct. bro. You they're, can they're get Correct. There are people you know who make money off that. of you driving to yeah. the airport. As you know it turns how out. to do that. This is this is exactly yeah. correct. That those people, but that that, that kind of went away for the most part. So if you find someone who's still asking for a ride to the airport, that's a greedy motherfucker at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you greedy bitch. You know, unless you save your it's thirty like, bucks on the Uber. Yeah, it's unless yeah. it's like your wife or your girlfriend and she wants to talk to you when you drop her off at the airport. That's totally cool. Right. Well, this, that's this understandable. is understandable. This is well, but that's what I mean by my circle of friendship. Yes. Like somebody where. I'm in the car with them for half an hour and it doesn't feel like an obligation. Yeah, yeah, you have a nice conversation. That's that's fine, but... Um, I value community and I value value people talking and trying to understand each other and I've seen so much conflict that's unnecessary because I see so much conflict that's rooted in people not communicating and, and instead of communicating. And I think this is one of the things that I'm most nervous about with all this 
deplatforming and censoring people and the silencing of people on the right. And it's not that I agree with these people. It's that I see how this is just going to shore up these two sides and it's going to make it a much more difficult much more difficult atmosphere for communication for real understanding and and coming to agreements on things and and recognizing the things that we all all good people seem to agree you could try you should try to help each other you should be kind to each other you should work hard you should have good morals and ethics you shouldn't steal you shouldn't take from people you shouldn't lie you shouldn't try to cheat the government you shouldn't try to cheat people right. well, just be a good fucking person and that this this transcends Religious ideologies, it transcends political leanings. It really does. It should. And we can have a truly diverse community. Truly diverse. Not forced diversity. Right. Diverse meaning some people are progressive. Some people are conservative. Some people are libertarian. You can joke with each other. We can all get along together and disagree with things. Just not be fucking hateful towards each other. This is possible. But it it becomes less possible when people feel like they're being silenced or censored. This is totally right. And it's also true that when you when you castigate somebody as morally unequal, what you're really doing is you're giving an excuse to get into their shit. Yes. I mean, like this is what, what's really happening here. Like if I had a slogan beyond the facts, don't care about your feelings stuff, it would just leave me alone. Yeah. Right. Don't get into my shit. Like I'm not bothering you. So why are you bothering me? And if I have a belief system that's different than yours, then so the hell what? As long as I'm not bothering you, what difference does it make to you how I feel about things? The only like, thing about the gay thing is that it's not you. You have a belief about things that's not you. But I have lots of beliefs about things that are not me. Right, but they're people that aren't hurting each other. But it's, so what? I mean, I can believe that people who aren't hurting each other, like, I'm not a fan of prostitution. So? Like, so? I, I'm not a fan of people, here's some, somebody no, not hurting. Prostitution's clearly more of a choice than I think gay people are. Okay, but I'm, I'm right? but again, you're, lot, you're coming, you're coming back times. to the same moral distinction, yeah. which I've, I've repeated a few times, which right. is that, I'm not a believer that a natural desire to do something therefore makes an activity okay. But that's but that's a view that has no externalities. My view has no externalities. So mm -hmm. in the same way, listen, I have beliefs about people who eat too much and get obese because they eat too much. I think I it's a do, bad thing to do. I, I don't do think well. it's my business. You want to do it? Your problem. Like you want to you want to f up your life? That's what freedom is called, right? Isn't freedom. it one of the seven deadly sins? Gluttony. Uh, yeah, that, again, a Christian thing, but yeah, I think. That, <laughs> <laughs> but it's but yes, I mean, and I have I have lots of beliefs about. Lots of things that people do. And by the way, so do you. Things that don't affect you, right? I yes. mean, this is, we all do. Mm -hmm. But as long as I'm not forcing that on you because right. there are no externalities to your behavior, I don't see why it bothers you. Like, mm. there are legitimately, I would assume, tens of millions of people in this country who believe that when I die, I will go to hell. Right? I don't, mm. I don't believe in Jesus. And so there are a lot of people who believe I don't believe in Jesus. Therefore, I am bound for hell. That does not bother me one iota because no one's bothering me. So what do I care? Right. Like, I don't understand why everyone doesn't take this view. If I'm not legitimately bothering you, why should why should you care what I think? Like this is this is what would be puzzling me. If somebody came to me and they wanted my opinion on something because they valued my opinion that much, I'd give my opinion. But it's a you don't have to care about my opinion. I think when it comes to the gay thing, what people are looking for is to people for other folks to be accepting of who they are. And I think for a lot of these gay folks that have been in the closet their whole life, that's the big thing is they're always worried about someone treating them differently or someone diminishing them because they're gay. Then when they hear someone like you say that you think it's a sin and that you shouldn't act on your biology, even though you have these urges that you should instead find a woman, they feel the same pangs of rejection. And I get and of, that. I, I for sure get that. But the, the confluence between activity and identity is actually kind of a dangerous one, meaning mm -hmm. that the, you know, the, the, 
idea that if I disapprove of an activity in which you engage, that I disapprove of you. Right. I disapprove of lots of activities that in which lots of people engage, including most members of my family, including my children <laughs> a lot of the time. Right. That does not mean I disapprove of them as a human being or that I'm, I'm saying they're lesser as a human being. Right. That, like, we all interact with people this way. Like, you disapprove of my view on this. I don't get the feeling you disapprove of me as a human being. No, I don't. And, right? I um, practice a religion. You obviously think my religion is bullshit, but that's okay. I don't care. Like, why, why I would don't that... think it's bullshit. I wouldn't say I think it's bullshit. Well, you think, I, you, I you, think, you think that the, like, God spoke to somebody on a mountain is bullshit, right? Well, I don't even know if that's bullshit. What I do know is that it's a historical interpretation of stories that were as much as they could or as little as they wanted to be accurately defined and written down and then passed on from generation to generation. Okay, so to let, generation. let me take it for an example. You think the fact that I won't eat pork is kind of stupid bullshit? No, I don't think it's stupid bullshit. First of all, I think pigs are intelligent. I wish they weren't wild. I have a deep affinity to pigs. <laughs> I, I really the wrong do. Example here. <laughs> I love them, <laughs> I, but I also kill them well, and you, I eat them. Right. Yep. I mean, I kill wild pigs. Let me be broader about this. You're not an Orthodox Jew, so I assume no. there are things about the things but I don't that think I do. It's stupid. And, uh, well, I, but I, there are certain things of which I believe or practice that you that you probably disapprove or you you don't think they're the smartest or you think that they're or I might not think it's the smartest but as i've gotten older and hopefully wiser i give a fuck less about why you do what you do but whether or not the benefits seem to be worth if the juice is worth a squeeze right and in your case i think the juice is worth a squeeze i think you're a very successful person you're very reasonable you're very intelligent you're an outstanding debater and i enjoy talking to you and listening to you on youtube um i think part of that is because of the fact that you're religion right of, of your, your religious i think it's cross training i think in a lot of ways it's like if you lift weights for jujitsu, it makes you stronger. It'll make your jujitsu better mm -hmm. as long as you keep training. I think you, your discipline from your religion has there's psychological benefits to it. Right. There's no, ethical totally. benefits to it. There's it's a real. No, I, thing. I totally get all that. I guess the the point is that we're different people. So yes. there's certain activity in which I engage that you probably think, well, that's I wouldn't do. That's kind of dumb, yeah, and that's I, okay. I but don't, I wouldn't I, though. I, I I would, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I don't want to do it. I don't want to wear a yarmulke. Right. But I get it. I understand why you it'd do it. It'd be hard to keep it on your head. I mean, yeah, frankly, I just glue it. What what do bald dudes do? They put a they piece of double stick tape there. Not not much. You can not allowed to. No, you can. You totally can. But that seems painful and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, the point is that in, living in a society, we all are constantly disapproving of each other, right? Politics yes. is just us disapproving of each other all the time. Mm -hmm. And so long as we're not forcing that on anybody else, I really don't see the problem. And I think everybody should sort of get over it. Like, if I don't approve of your personal behavior, welcome to the club. I disapprove of 99% of people's personal behavior, including my own half the time. Do you, how, how often do you debate people on the merits of religion or the merits of your belief system? Um, you know, not not super frequently, but not infrequently. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I, I mentioned that I've, I've had this conversation with Sam a couple of different times yeah. in public. Well, he's, um, he's so rabid as an atheist, but yet you guys... He's are more religious. Uh, Sam is more religious than I am. <laughs> Sam, Sam is more of a religious atheist than I am. Like, I'll admit questions about my own religion. Sam is very, very convinced of his of his correctness and in, in his viewpoint. Sam Sam's a religious dude. He's a fascinating guy. He is. I, I like Sam a lot. Uh, I and, do too. And Michael Shermer, uh, I've had on my show to talk about religion and, mm -hmm. and skepticism and, yeah. and all that i'm not shy about talking about it i just sometimes i find that it's it's kind of a dead end mm -hmm. because sometimes it just turns into i believe in god and then the other person's like i don't believe in god and it's like well okay fine now, now can we talk about the stuff we think are the what are the fundamental building blocks upon which you can base a society or base a politics and if we agree on those then you know the god stuff i think god is a better base for those fundamental policies and 
and and belief systems. I think free speech, individualism, democracy, these are based on a, a simple verse in Genesis that g- human beings are made in God's image. I'm, I think that that's a logical leap. This is mm. the case I've made to, to Sam. I, I don't think that you can actually get to human beings are of inestimable, inestimable value from scientific materialism. If you believe that human beings are effectively just animals, then I don't know why they would be of infinite value, nor why I should respect somebody's belief system simply because they're human. I don't respect animals, and if we're just another animal, I, I, there's, no, there's nothing that necessitates that logical line of th- In fact, for most of human history, it was not the logical line of thinking. It was, if you're a member of my tribe, then we like you, and if you're not a member of my tribe, then we get to kill you. But, uh, is, but is that a, a logical comparison? Like, is, isn't there a difference between single-celled organisms and the way a primate interacts with its environment? I mean, yes, but I'm not sure why that would indicate any sort of greater existential value. It's not necessarily a greater existential value, but as we were talking about the value of community and the value of uh, having a group of people that you care about, that this is this is a, a core component of being human. This is a it's a core component of this understanding mind, but that's, that's this a, that's rational, a, intelligent interfacing with the universe in a way that no other animal is capable of. I, I'm not saying you can't get to the point where Sam agrees with me. I'm saying that I think it's less convincing than Sam thinks it is. Mm, Meaning there's, I, an, there's an alternative line saying. of thought that says, okay, you're right, social fabric is great. You know where that social fabric is particularly awesome? Among me and my friends. Yes. You know where it ain't that great? Those guys over there. Let's go kill them and take their shit. Mm. Right? Like that, that was pretty much how humanity works sure. for a very, very long time. Yeah. Uh, and the simple and effective idea that the reason that human beings are of value is because we are more than just our material bodies, that mm-hmm. there's something that is us that is of inestimable value. That's a religious concept, and it has a lot of weight. Now, yeah. if Sam wants to get to the same place, and we can build a political conversation from there, that's fine. My real argument with Sam is, Sam and I go down to the bottom of the iceberg about 90% of the way. We have the same fundamental values about free speech, diversity of opinion, about, I think, to, to mostly an extent, free markets. Uh, you know, I think that we, we agree on a lot of these fundamental principles. He then says that he gets those from pure reason. I have serious questions about whether pure reason necessitates those conclusions. He tends to think that those are the only conclusions a reasonable person could come to if you properly apply your reason. I don't think that's right. What do you think is happening there? What's the mechanism? I think that the mechanism is that we are common. What I said to Sam uh, when we were debating this in San Francisco is it's real weird. He's a materialist, a scientific materialist atheist who is sitting across the stage from me, a religious Jew. We agree on 95% of our values. So how? And his answer was, well, you know, here's where I've studied. I've, I've studied Buddhism. I've studied these philosophies, and, and I've studied science and all this. He said, right, I haven't studied a lot of those things, but we have the same values, so why? It seems to me a better historical explanation is that we have grow, we grew up 10 miles from each other in Los Angeles after 3,000 years of common history of Judeo-Christian development, balanced with reason in the West. Like, location has something to do with this. And that location was rooted in commonality of interest and, and philosophy. So uh, I, I'm less it's it's there's a, a weird nexus and i don't want to get too kind of deep in the weeds here there's a weird kind of nexus on what truth is uh where you've heard sam and, and jordan peterson debate this that was insane it was it's wild right um and the truth is i'm closer to sam than jordan on this so i'm closer to jordan than sam when it comes to the value of religion and i'm mm-hmm. closer to sam than jordan when it comes to objective truth sam right. believes that there is such a thing as objective truth jordan tends to be more of a pragmatist he tends to believe that truth is sort of what is useful to a certain extent um and my I agree with Sam, but I'm not sure how he gets to objective truth from a scientific materialist worldview. Why is there objective truth as opposed to what you think is what you think being evolutionarily beneficial? How do you get from that to it's a universal principle that is objectively true? 
It's 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 a bit of a jump. Well, it depends on what the concept is, right? Like, what are you talking about in terms of I'm talking about truth? I'm talking about anything that Sam says is true. What makes it true as opposed to just evolutionarily beneficial for us to think so? Meaning what evolution does is it creates a series of thoughts in our mind, presumably, if you're a materialist, mm-hmm. that are beneficial to your preservation and promulgation of the species. Right? They're not acti- actually true. So if it's beneficial, this is Sam's re- re- explanation for the prevalence of religion, for example. Mm-hmm. He'll say religion isn't true, but evolutionary biology sort of drives people toward religion so you can have group bonds that are beyond 150 people or whatever. So why doesn't that apply to math? Why is it the two and two? How do you know that two and two actually equals four? As opposed to, it is evolutionary ben- evolutionarily beneficial for you to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. So Sam believes there's an objective truth somewhere out there that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I don't know what evolution has to do with that sort of stuff. So what do you think is happening that he disagrees with? So I think that what is happening is that human beings were placed in an orderly universe through the processes of biology and have a unique capacity to understand that universe because we are made in the image of God. This is where I think that the religious viewpoint diverges pretty strongly from from sam's but you believe in evolution yes you believe that evolution was a process that was created by god to formulate human beings yes interesting yeah i mean that's that's the nice thing about being religious you can attribute most most everything to god is is it's it's nice well here's the thing it's not that implausible if, if there was some sort of a grand plan, there would be no regard for, like, oh, we've got to get a rush on this. Right. Just <laughs> m- making the evolutionary being, you know, we're going to, you know, really accelerate of, the process. And there's all sorts of fine-tuning arguments about how implausible it would be for just atoms roaming around the universe randomly to end with, with human creation. You know, the, the alternative explanations seem no no more, no less implausible to me. Like, the, mm. the multiple universes theory plausible but we have no way to prove it because we can't get to those multiple universes so how is that testable right or the or the now popular theory that we're living in an ai simulation not sure how that's more testable than god not sure how it's more testable that aliens put us here like how's any of this why is that more testable or more plausible than the idea that there is a force behind that which we see that has mind well let's let's just break this down slowly there's obviously something that's happening. There's obviously something that went from the Big Bang to planet Earth in 2019 with cellular communication and satellite dishes. And obviously something happened, something pretty radical. Why is it happening? Is it happening because of random events that sort of coincide with biology and technology and all these things come to fruition to you and I standing across from each other talking on this podcast in front of millions of people or is this is this just how things go is things compete constantly try to get better and then in this gigantic ecosystem of all these things competing and trying to get better one super successful organism us rises above and continues right and continues and by far passes all these other creatures below it and moves we in our estimation i mean if you if you really believe in evolution you can't think we're done right it's got to be moving towards some better product it keeps going until it creates so Something this is why like I say that, that Sam is more religious than I am. I think that there's a plausible argument for atheism. I just don't think that there is a plausible argument for Sam's moral vision of atheism. Mm. Meaning that what, what, what Sam tends to do is, it, like, for example, you and I have talked a lot on, on this particular podcast about the value of self-betterment 
and making decisions and being responsible for those decisions. How does that work in an area where we don't have free will? So Sam actively says we do not have free will. Yeah, that's a weird conversation. It's, it, is, it is a weird conversation and sort of a self-defeating one. Sam suggests when it comes to the scientific method that we are using science to find out truths about the universe. And we're using reason. Sam's very big on reason. I also am big on reason, but I don't know how Sam is defining reason as opposed to just an evolutionarily beneficial firing of neurons, meaning that that's what we are, right? We're balls of yeah. meat wandering purposeless through the universe. And then he'll talk about making our own meaning or seeking human, human um, prosperity or uh, um, flourishing is the mm-hmm. word he likes to use. These are all very active verbs, right? This is, this is an active vision of man in the universe. Right. And I'm not sure how that flows from we're a ball of meat that evolved from another ball of meat that evolved eventually, if you go back far enough, from non-balls of meat without any, without any free will, without any capacity to choose. I don't, I don't know how you build a civilization on that. Well, there's two different conversations here. One is determination, or determinism, rather. Whether or not you have free will or whether or not your life and your actions are being dictated by the past, by your biology, by your learned experiences, by ex- external pressures. What is causing this very clear decision that you make? Is this free will? Are you deciding, I'm going to get my shit together? Or are all the factors around you pushing you and funneling you into this this direction that you it's unavoidable to you? Right. And that you are not a product of free will. You're just a product of a lot of different factors. Right. Or is it both? Is it that you are the product of your environment and your life experiences and you also have free will? Right. And I'm... I'm- in the latter group. I'm in the latter group, I think, as well. I think we also experience great benefit from making positive choices and then experiencing, like, whenever you meet someone who's lost a lot of weight, one, one of the things they have is this fucking tremendous feeling of accomplishment. Yep. You know, and like, yeah, I lost 100 pounds. You're like, holy shit, man, 100 pounds. Right. Like, they get this positive feedback from it. There's, there's real good in making good choices. And when people decide to get their shit together and make a good choice, they're rewarded. The question is, are you doing that because of determinism or are you doing that because of free will? Or are you doing that because of a combination of both of those things? And can you fuel that free will purposely through like outwardly seeking things that are motivational or things that are educational, things that allow you to kind of remap the way you process reality, right? which can be extremely beneficial and can aid in you taking steps towards exercising your free will. Right. Well, th- and th- this is why I think that in if the end, it, and, and right, but, the, the, and, <laughs> but I think that's a pretty fundamental question. And I yeah. think that that's why in the end, I'm religious and I'm not sure why Sam isn't because he agrees with the same premises, mm. right? He'll, he'll, he'll talk about self-betterment and decisions that you can make, and then he'll write a full book about why free will doesn't exist. And I just don't understand how those two things can coexist. Yes. It's, uh, well, I think it's a thought experiment. First of all, I think the whole determinism thing is a thought experiment because mm-hmm. there's really no way to determine. Right. It's like you can, I can but you see have to the act argument. as though for sure, right? I mean, like right. there's just no way to, to act otherwise. Um, but I, I, act I guess then as, I've absolutely act as if I have free will. Right. And, and we I, all do. And I get angry at myself when I fuck things up. I don't say, well, it's just determinism, man. Like, right. I, no, that doesn't get you in. And But maybe it's determinism that has put me in this position where I'm the kind of guy that gets upset if I fuck things up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. But I don't know if you know either. That's my, my take on all these things. When people get really rigid with their ideologies. Yeah. Like, okay, I want to hear it out. I want to hear the whole thing. 
You know, uh, I want to hear it all. I I'm not sure a, if you know. I think there's a, I think there's a, there, no, I think there's a lot that I don't know, but I yeah. think that there's more plausible and less plausible. I agree. Um, this is where I think people misunderstand you. You have your beliefs, but you're not a guy that imposes them on people. And I think we need to be way more reasonable in terms of the way we address people's beliefs. And uh, I've been guilty of this in the past. I'm sure many so people I, listening everyone have. Has, right? Everyone yeah. has. But I think it's a core component to a healthy community is to allow people to have their own beliefs. And, you know, who knows, man? Maybe your beliefs on gay people will adjust and move over time as you get older and move into a gay neighborhood and... Again, it's not. It, it, look, dude, it's not. It's not about tolerance for. I understand. For gay folks. I know. I it's a, a lot religious of friends. thing. I mean, I don't. Yeah. yeah, it's it it's it's a difference between understanding people uh, as as whole people, and then saying that I don't yeah. like some of the things that they do, and simply saying the, the making the assumption that because I don't like some of the things that you do, we can't be friends, or I disapprove of you as an entire human being, which mm -hmm. I think is not true. It's a good belief system to have if you're straight. And then you go, look, got it locked down. Don't need to worry about that. I got a problem. But if you were gay, god damn, that would be a pain in the yeah, ass. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck, I mean, it would be annoying if you just always wanted to bang dudes and everyone's saying no. And you're yeah, like, no, but that's said, what I want to do. Nobody said, religion's, bang me. No, nobody said religion's easy, man. It's, oh, what's the value in it, though? If you're, a, <laughs> if you're a giant homo, all right, and all you want to do is go to gay discos and party your ass off, that's what you enjoy. Some people like golf, okay? Some people... <laughs> Some people like parasailing. Some dudes just want to fucking get it on, man. They want to dress up like the village people and go have a fucking party. That's why Santa Monica Boulevard is such a hot spot. I mean, they find each other. It, you know, do whatever you want to do. Honestly, do whatever you want to do. Just mend your don't, don't ask me to think that, you know, don't ask me to like put my stamp of, of moral approval on I it. I understand But that. do what you want to do. Like, it's a free country. This, this and is, it should be a free country. Not just it is a free country. Yeah. It should be a free country. It should not be my job to police your personal behavior. Right, right. Right, like you, doesn't mean I have to approve it on a personal level. Right. But I'm, I'm a jerk if I want to impose my belief system on, on your personal behavior that affects no one else. I mean, that's the definition of being that. an asshole. And I'm a hypocrite if I continue to berate you about your, <laughs> your opinion on gay folks. Why do I give a fuck what your opinion is? Correct. Because you are a reasonable person and you do, you're very polite and you've, you're even friends with Dave Rubin. So there you go. <laughs> There's got to be, <laughs> be something there. It's um, it's a strange thing, though, this uh, this need that people have for everyone to think the way they think. And I understand the need to reinforce your own thoughts and, 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 and argue them and try to figure out a way to d debate that the other person's perspective is incorrect and your perspective is correct. I, I understand all these inclinations that people have. But uh, I, I think that they conflate that with bigotry, right? You know, and I don't exactly. Think, I don't think you're a bigot. I don't agree with you about gay folks, but that's one of the few. The marijuana thing is just I just don't think you have any experience in it, right? And as far as the as far as disagreeing, I, I think that we probably don't disagree on on gay folks. I think we disagree on identity and gay activity yes. and all the rest of it. I mean, as human beings, yeah, these are human beings. I, I know many gay people who I think are significantly better human beings than religious people that I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. I think, um, it, 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 I, there's in a way, I don't have a defined religion, but in a way I have some pretty rigid ideas that I have in my head about behavior and ethics and morals and how you treat people you care about. 
Those are, those are like, they're pretty rigid. And I think one of the things that religion does is it allows you to have this sort of ethical framework, sort of like, um, you know, what, what is it called? Scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Like when you're mm-hmm. building, like it allows you to develop a, a, a more disciplined life and it just shows you this is good and this is bad and it's clear. And there's, there's most, for, in the, for the most part, it's good. For the most part, it, these, are, these are good patterns to follow. And I think that I've most certainly sort of adopted my own somewhere along the line. I think we all do. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a value system effectively is usually a form of religion. Right. So when you're saying that Sam is religious, he's a religious atheist, yeah, you're, not a being, system. Yeah, you're not being inaccurate. There's a lot of folks do that. We we do develop these sort of principles that we follow. We're not just free willy nilly, just doing whatever we want right. all day long. No one does that. It and, just, and, I, and the reason I say it is sort of facetiously, but I, I think that we all make fundamental assumptions about the nature of human life, mm-hmm. and we have to recognize that those are assumptions. You can't. It's it's not reason all the way down. Yeah. That it, because that tends to actually become even more inflexible. Then it's I'm the only reasonable person in the room. My reasons are the only ones that matter. And yeah. So it's my reasons all the way down acknowledge that we're all making some assumptions and then we can discuss whether those assumptions are worthwhile or not. Yeah. The thing that when it comes with religion in defining whether or not other people's behavior is sinful, where where it doesn't involve you, that's where a lot of folks start thinking that maybe these ideas are bigoted. Right. But it does involve me. Meaning that I'm, well, I'm, I'm enjoined. Every sin that I say is a sin is, is a sin that enjoins me. It's just that I may not have a desire for that particular sin. In, Meaning in, I'm, not, I'm not holding people to a different standard than I hold myself, nor am I saying that I never sin. Right, but you know that you have different biological desires than they do. You right. kind of acknowledge that, uh, right? Uh, of course that's true. Yeah. Of course that's true. By the same token, I assume that a gay guy doesn't have the desire to strip a thousand women, which most straight guys do. Yeah. Why do you think, if, if God has a plan, why do you think he would create gay people? I mean, I think that God creates, first of all, I don't think that I'm in a position to evaluate God's plan. But I wish I guess, were. But if you like God's... If, if, I, if I had a guess, God liaison. creates people with all sorts of different challenges, and those challenges span the spectrum. Mm. I mean, I, I'm not... So God sneaks it up on you. Hey, man, I know this is going to be fucked up, <laughs> but you're going to just like dudes. Like, forget about women. You're going to like dudes. I but, am not... But I want you to ignore that. Dude, I want you to I don't ris- know listen God, to my old book. I don't know why God gives people drives. I don't know why God gives kids cancer. I don't know a lot of things about God. Wish I did. It would make my life a lot easier. So you think that that is a challenge akin to uh, any other challenge that a human being might face in this life, that the challenge of being... But a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But a lot more difficult and a lot more straining and a lot... Yeah, of course. But I mean, you think there's value in following that challenge and not acting on gay urges? I think there, I think there can be. And sure. having sex with a woman, plug your nose, go, ooh, and make a face because you're disgusted. I don't know. Did you, create a, did you create a baby out of that? Did that is that baby like... A part of your life now that is that is deep and meaningful. Mm. Maybe. But what about there are living, a lot of, in, in the past? There are a lot of gay guys having kids. What about people saying living their truth? I'm living my truth, Ben Shapiro. Well, I mean, <laughs> as a general rule, living my truth is a bunch of crap. Like there's a, there's living your opinion, which is fine. Like live your opinion yeah. how you want. Again, that gets back to do what you want as long as it's not bothering me. Living my truth is a different thing. You're, that's you're, one of those social media creations, like. Living my truth. Like, such, mm. that, that's just bullshit. I'm sorry. Living, <laughs> living my truth is bullshit. Like it's, it's, there's no such thing as your truth. There's the truth, and then there's your opinion, and we do yeah. have to if we're, for purposes of conversation, at the very least, it's deeply irritating when people say living my truth, because yes. then it's like, I disagree with you, and then they're like, well, you're, you're disavowing me as a human being. No, I just disagree. Like, you can be you. You can do what you want. Like, you do the, whatever, man. <laughs> like, calm, calm down. Like, I'm, 
how did I become the most loosey-goosey, libertarian, lean-back guy in the world in the society? How is this possible? I'm the most uptight person I know. How is this a thing? Well, you know as well as I do that the further you go left, you, 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 re- you reach the same sort of zealotry that you do when you go all the way right. This is correct. You, you meet these crazy people that are just completely connected to their idea of being correct and they take the most rigid stance on all these issues on the left side or on the right side and it's so goddamn common it's, it's a pattern boring. of human behavior it's also it's, it's, it's also incredibly boring yes i mean there's just nothing to discuss with with people yeah who do that, i so. agree and that's one of the reasons why it's so disgusting when people mislabel people like so there was an article that connected me with richard spencer like what in the fuck like, that is such a disingenuous thing to do. Yep. And they know what they're doing. They're either trying to get me to react to it and talk about it and get, get more clicks. Get you, yeah. It's, it, but it's horseshit. It, yep. Like, anybody who... But if you are locked into that far-left ideology, as far-left as you can go, and it's one of the problems with ideologies that have these extremists, is that you believe in a percentage of the things these people say, but then they go way too far with it. But you're connected with them. You're connected with them because you're a part of that, even though you don't have a, a, a similar notion. Steven Pinker got browbeaten over suggesting that failure to ask questions and give plausible answers gives excuse me, credence to the alt-right. That, that if you do a – so he did a whole speech where he said, listen, there are lots of conversations about IQ and race. And the alt-right loves these conversations because then they, then they suggest wrongly that black people are inherently unfit and white people are more fit and all, all that kind of stuff. And he says there are great ways to explain wh- how much of IQ is, is cultural, how much can be changed, how much is genetic, how much that m- actually matters in terms of real-life outcomes. We can do all those things. But when you say, don't ask the question, stop asking the question, then you – make people Google, and the only thing that they will Google and find are answers that are given by people who are actually alt-right. Right. And he got ripped as alt-right for this. Yeah, His so entire argument this. was don't allow people to push into alt-right answers by failing to give them proper responses or by throwing them out the window. And then people are like, well, you're alt-right now because you're saying that, that people should be able to ask questions. Well, like, it's almost like it, when it's you just discuss- like the, it's, it's the exact same version as people in the religious community where it's like, you know, I used to go to Sunday school, and then I asked too many questions, and they kicked me out. Right? That's... That's not how religion's supposed to work. That's not how. That's not how reason is supposed to work. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. Right. And there's also when when you're <clears throat> investigating anything, any measurable thing, w- there, when you find a number, whatever it is, like these people, like uh, Asian folks are better at mathematics, uh, European folks are better at this. And, like, what is what's the reason for that? Like, what what's let's find out. Is it cultural? Is it biological? Is it something? Can we learn about how human beings evolved and adapted? Why are Nigerians so smart? Like, there's so many Nigerians that come to this country. They thrive. They thrive in business. They're extremely motivated. They're extremely disciplined. It's like a, it's like almost like Korean folks. Why do Koreans like? Why are they so hardworking? Why do they strive? And obviously, these are big generalizations. Right. But what is it about Italians? What, what, what makes them wear gold chains and love mafia movies? Like, what is it? Those are my people. Like, what the, what the fuck? Why do they all talk like that? Like, what is that? What causes a, a, any sort of ethnic group to turn out the way they turned out? What, why are so many European Jews Nobel Prize winners? Right. And, what the fuck is going on over right. there? And also, like, what is the impact of the measurable on how we live our lives like yeah. to, should, how much should this stuff matter is this is this a result of discrimination or is this a result of something else is it true that when you group any group of people together racially or non-racially there will be disparities between those two groups of people this is just true statistically like 
but not asking those questions and then saying, right. shut down the questions. What that actually does is it leads people to only get the answers to the questions from the people who don't know what they're talking yes. about in many cases and who are giving convenient, easy, and self-flattering answers about the nature of, of themselves. The fear is it being used by racists to reinforce their positions. Right. But what you find out is that they'll the do Asians that anyway. are the superior like, race. Right, they'll, they'll I mean, do, uh, and, and they'll do that anyway. Like yes. one, of the, one of the funniest things about white supremacists is they're so fucking stupid. I mean, pardon the language. Like the, the white supremacists are invariably not the Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> it's, it's, it, you go to a white supremacist compound, you're not looking at a bunch of people who are curing cancer. Like, these people piss me off. And, and, this is, and now and I'll say all that. It won't matter. The media will label me outright tomorrow because that's yeah. the way this goes. Well, the disingenuous media that's being less and less taken seriously, taken less and less seriously, it's, it seems to me that that trend, which is a common trend that's existed for the last few years of these clickbaity bullshit articles and mislabeling people it's going to go away because your 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 perspective is not going to be appreciated it's not going to be respected if you if you're obviously making disingenuous statements like that and i think um we're in this weird position where it's very difficult to find real journalism and real objective takes on things that aren't flavored by their ideology. And everybody's trying to shape everybody and they feel like it's their obligation. They feel there's many people that write things that feel like it's their obligation to change your perspective on national subjects and things that are, that are important to us. It's not their obligation to just report what's going on, but also their obligation to flavor things in a way that'll make one side look favorable to the other. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very much in favor of journalists revealing their biases. I think that the, the greatest lie in media is that objective journalism is a thing. Mm. So I'm a conservative. You want to go to my site, you'll get a conservative spin on the news. That's the way it's going to work. Right. And guess what? CNN's liberal, and they are going to give you the liberal spin on the news. And that's just the way this is going to work. Did you see the video when the Mueller report came out? And they looked like somebody got killed. Oh, my God. It yeah. was crazy. It was, like, it was the day that Kennedy got happy? shot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Shouldn't you be happy if if you guys believed in Mueller? Everybody was like, Mueller is the fucking man. He's gonna go get Trump. This guy is methodical. He's precise. People He's were gonna buying find votive out candles. Everything. Votive yeah. candles with his face on yes. them that they could like burn. They were pumped. Yeah, and then he came out and it was like, well, no collusion. Everybody's like, well, I guess that now it's a cover up. It's a it's, yeah. Like what? Wait it, a minute. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe the narrative has maybe the narrative has 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 trumped the actual job you were supposed to do, guys. Well, it's just so many people were so convinced, and there were so many people that were making statements that, in retrospect, are probably like you could probably. I mean, I don't want to say I'm not a litigious person, but if I was a guy like Donald Trump, oh man, yeah, there's so many people to sue. Is it? It was, right? it was amazing. I mean, I remember I was on Bill Maher's show, and we were supposed to talk about free speech stuff, and like five minutes before, and he's like, let's talk about Russia. His producer came in. Let's mm. talk about Russia. And I was like, okay, fine. So we get on. The producer said that? Yeah, this is like right is before they switched the topic. How goofy are TV shows where they just tell you what you have to talk about? I don't know. It's, Some it's, guy comes in with a clipboard. Yeah. It was, it, was a little bit, it was a little bit strange. And we got on stage, and he's talking about Trump-Russia collusion. And I said what I've always said, which is, I'll wait for the evidence to come out, and then I will make a decision as to whether Trump-Russia collusion was a thing. And Bill Maher's like— radical. I know. And, and Bill Maher goes, you don't, you don't believe it was a thing? And I was like, well, I don't see any evidence yet that it was a thing. Like, I see some evidence of attempts to collude, like Don Jr. I see some attempts of people trying to get information. But I don't see evidence of, like, actual legal collusion. And why don't we just wait? Like, you guys keep wanting Mueller to give us, like, let's just wait on it. And Mark could not believe that this was my perspective, right? It was like, it was like shocking to him. Why should, why should the perspective, I'm waiting for more evidence, be shocking to anyone when it is obvious the evidence is not out? 
Like why why yeah. is that in any way controversial? It's it's bewildering to me. Well, it's because people have this need to let everyone know that they're on the right side. And they want you to know that they do believe in the collusion. And if you disagree with that, for whatever reason, you must either be a right-wing person, a Trump supporter, someone who's in denial, someone who doesn't look at the evidence, and you're a part of the problem. Yep. But the, the real problem was jumping to conclusions. There obviously seemed to be some attempts. There's, there's obviously some fuckery with that IRA company, that the, the Internet Research Agency that mm-hmm. is responsible for millions of interactions with people online where they pretended to be right. different supporters. The trolls of all, and yeah, all this, yeah. They, they caused conflict, like constant conflict in regards to political opinion. And that's all real. That was a coordinated effort to try to change people's opinions. But how much of that had to do with Donald Trump? How much did he ask for? First of all, Just, you got no evidence. Also, I was always bewildered by this theory. Like, did you watch that campaign? Um, that was not the most well-coordinated campaign. It was chaos. It was chaos. I mean, I knew everybody who was in the campaign. Like, it was a it was a shit show. Yeah. And the idea that they're sitting there, but they're but when the mask comes off at night, they call up Vladimir Putin and mm-hmm. they put together a point by point plan on how they're going to swing this particular precinct in rural in rural Michigan. It's like, what what are you? Are you guys high? Like, <laughs> what what are you talking about? Like, what? Like, if you could attribute this to. to Here's a good rule of thumb for politics. Attribute everything to stupidity unless you can prove malice. The real problem, and this is something that is very similar to what we were talking about earlier. When you say something and you say it over and over and over again and you say it with such conviction and it becomes a giant part of your news narrative and then that something turns out to be horseshit yep you just massively empowered trump that's that's exactly right i massively mean I, i've said empowered. for a long time that you know i'm not a big fan of trump's fake news shtick because i think he applies it too broadly i think that whenever there's a bad piece of news he's like fake news and it's like well sometimes yes and sometimes no but now that you just blew a two year narrative where he was clearly in putin's pocket how many people are you think going to listen to the nuanced view of fake news now and how many people do you think are going to actually believe Trump when he says that a bad piece of news is legitimately a fake piece of news? Yeah, it empowers him in a, in a, in a spectacular manner. They made a giant mistake. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, they, blew, the, they blew this one in spectacular fashion. And, and people are still hanging in there with All it. All they had to do – this is true for so many people right now. All you have to do is not be crazy. Just stop it. Do, who was the guy that was talking about the possibility that Trump has been a Russian asset since like 1987 or some yeah, I mean, shit? Who the so fuck was that? I mean, Andrew McCabe, the former FBI director, was asked whether Trump was legitimately a Russian asset. And he's like, I don't know. It's like you're using the power of the institution you used to run to spread this nonsense. And you, you got that from John Brennan. You got it from James Clapper. These are all former heads of the intelligence agencies. It just makes me think the intelligence agencies need to be wildly curbed back if these were the heads of them. I mean, if like the heads of the intelligence agencies are using their platform to proclaim that they have inside information about Trump that turns out to be utter nonsense, I'm not sure these people should have that much power to like. Check is that what he's calls. saying, or is he saying he doesn't know? He didn't say. I don't know. He was saying like, I have basically. I expect that Mueller is going to indict. As a former intelligence oh, really? professional, I expect that, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of that. It was ugly. Adam Schiff oh, on, the, on the intel committee doing the same thing. It's crazy now, because, like, what do they do now? Like, how do they rebound from this? If this is something if that you didn't just go. say once, this is something you said for two years? Right. You've seen the compilation videos? Oh, yeah, they're, 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 they're amazing. They're amazing. They, they've done them to rap music, and they're like, they've, they put a beat behind it. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. No, there's some great ones. Some great comp- these compilations of people saying, possible collusion, possible collusion, possible yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's music that goes with it, and they just cut to possible collusion. 
collusion with the Russians. Possible Russian collusion. Yeah. Possible Russian collusion. It's, yeah, they, they, they blew it in a major way. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of shit to complain about. You didn't have to go with that. Like, the it, idea was that he was a traitor. He's a target-rich environment, yes. and you decided to go to, he's a Russian traitor. Yeah, what, it's, like, it's, like, it's no way out or something, and like, he's Kevin Costner at the last scene. Like, the what, what only in the way actual... he could have ever beaten Hillary. Sorry, I don't mean to check my watch. You gotta get here. out of here, man? I, I do a little bit, yeah. When do you have to leave? Right uh, now? Like, uh... I wanted to ask you one more question. Yeah, let's do one more question. What do you think about this um, Chelsea Manning situation? Because I, I don't know uh, exactly what happened other than she's in contempt of court. And so they've got her in solitary confinement now. This is about testifying against yeah, WikiLeaks. Yeah, I'll be honest. I haven't been following it that closely. I mean, my, my understanding is that Chelsea Manning, who... Okay, so here's where we get Do you call her Bradley? No. He, you changed he, the name? He changed his name to Chelsea. He is a biological male. <gasps> I can't I believe you're I misgendering. Know. Are you dead naming as well? Don't no, dead no, name. I don't, I don't <laughs> dead name. But, uh, unless we were talking about when... He committed his crimes, at which point he oh, was actually okay. Bradley as opposed to right. Chelsea, right? So if we're talking about so the person who was convicted, that was a male named Bradley Bannock. Did you say if the artist talking about the formerly person, known as Bradley? <laughs> if we're talking about the human being who's currently in jail, that is a male who is currently known as Chelsea. Mm, so, it, okay. the, so my understanding is that Bradley, is that Chelsea Manning is a uh, refused to hand over information that he was legally bound to hand over about WikiLeaks. Mm. Uh, and now there were complaints that he's being held in solitary, but that's not true apparently, uh, and that he's being mistreated. I do find it weird that the same people who are complaining about Donald Trump coordinating with WikiLeaks are very upset about Chelsea Manning going to jail for coordinating with WikiLeaks. You're going to need to pick one or the other. Is WikiLeaks bad or is WikiLeaks not bad? Yeah, what is WikiLeaks? It's only dependent upon whether or not they're supporting the narrative that you want. That's exactly right. And it it's used right to be and that left. WikiLeaks was very good, remember? Right, it, exactly. It was right and left, by the way. Like, there are yeah. people on the right where it's like, Julian Assange, Julian Assange is the worst. And then 2016 happened, like, Julian Assange, now there's a person I can really talk to. And it's like, well, no, I'm pretty sure Julian Assange is uh, a WikiLeaks, good information suggests they are a Russian front group. And take make of that what you will. End of story. Do you think that they became a Russian front group to try to stay operative and stay safe because they were obviously being attacked by the United States government and in danger of being shut down? And then they've. I mean, he's. I'll been be in honest. That, I really don't know enough about WikiLeaks to, to, to really get into a. I don't sort of Historical. But I know that he's been trapped in that embassy for since 2012. Yeah, I mean, I hope that he's got some video games or something in there. Fuck, man. He's been in there for like seven years now, right? That's a long Close. time to be in an embassy. That is a long time. It can't go outside, no sunlight. Pamela Anderson visits every now and then. <laughs> he's fucked, man. I mean, it's, it's a terrible place to be, and I don't know if it's better than prison. Because it's like the stress of him never knowing when they're going to come knock down the door and pull him out of there. I was like, how, how well does that guy sleep? Yeah. Seven years in that embassy it can't be great it can't be great it's got to be awful they took his internet away right uh i think they did that's fucked I mean, to, although to be fair wikileaks was releasing information on specific american soldiers in lines of, of combat so were they yes they didn't redact any of the names that was the problem that's why people were pissed really yes because when the, so the original dump from things. chelsea manning was that he dumped all the information to wikileaks including the stuff that was unredacted and wikileaks just released it they yeah that was, that was the it? claim that was the claim anyway um mm, i don't know if that's accurate I I'll heard, if, you, if you find differently, then let me know because I'll, I'll be happy to correct always. Yeah, you know, I'm sure you would. I just don't know if it, that is – I don't know. I don't have the information in front of me. Do you want to check? No. That'll take too much time. <laughs> That'll t Folks, you're going to have to Google this one. Um, but so when – one of the things that I was thinking when Trump got into office with all this drain that swamp shit, I was like, I wonder if Trump would be a WikiLeaks supporter. 
I wonder if Trump would be happy. Depends. If it helped him, yeah. sure, right? I right. Mean, and, it, or even, and Snowden as well. well you see I was this, wondering you about that. Yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, unfortunately, politics very often has little to do with principle and everything to do with convenience. Yeah. So if it's helpful, sure. If but not, wouldn't then a guy no. like him who's always anti-deep state and talking about the, the these – I mean, he's I, I do have extremely critical. Yes, but I do. I have, I have a feeling that once you actually sit in the big seat, I think that tends to change. Remember, Obama was too. Yeah, and then five minutes later, he was droning people. So, like, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so, well, listen. Um, I know you got to get out of here. So let's just wrap this up. Tell people about your book. Yeah, so you can check out my book, The Right Side of History. It talks about a lot of the sort of deeper issues we were talking about: Judeo-Christian values and reason, and sort of the. It's it's a kind of short form philosophical history of the West from. Sinai through Greece and talking about all the major Enlightenment philosophers. Some of the things we talked about on the show are in the book. It's number one bestseller on the New York Times nonfiction list, at least at the moment. Congratulations, so, man. That's you. awesome. I appreciate it. That's yeah. really pretty spectacular. It's pretty exciting. So. Um, your show, also Ben Shapiro Show. You can get the Ben Shapiro Show on iTunes. You can get it on YouTube, your Sunday review, which I did once. Yeah, the Sunday special. It's a blast. The Sunday special. We'll have to have you on again. That'd be I would fun. love to. Thank you. Uh, thanks for being here. Cool. And, and your book's available on Amazon, everywhere. All the places, yep. Okay. Ben Shapiro, ladies and gentlemen. That was great.